When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap with Mike Donahue. Mike, how are you? Good, Andy. How are you? Never better. Can't wait to remember some crap about the uh, Cubs. Before we get started, there was a... Uh, that's bad. I don't remember who brought this up on the Twitters. Um, well, this is remember this crap. was commenting on... I was making fun of the, just how terrible the Cubs' first and third baseman are this year. And he basically said, we tried to him and one of his buddies tried to figure out when was the last time the Cubs for an entire season had a truly bad first and third baseman. Ooh, you can narrow down the first baseman and see who was across the diamond. You can start with Fred McGriff, but we had, uh, no, it was before A-Ron. We had Bill Miller, Ron Coomer. There was probably about a 60-day stretch in 01 where the first third combo was McGriff at first and Coomer. We're talking strictly defensively or just bad no, players. players. And so even as, really, as, as much bad as, as, as Fred was, he was not, yeah. he wouldn't count. And Coomer didn't, was an awful that year. They did finish with a 299 it, on base. It base, goes back a hits. tremendously long. Oh, this has been researched. <laughs> oh yeah. I, as we, I, I, as he, we, he guessed it was the early fifties. And so I went back and looked and I'm going to have to look now what year it was. Cause I don't remember the third baseman, but uh, it, it was like 55. Okay. Was, my dad could probably it was guess. D Fondy. And, oh, it was, it was bad. But it just shows that, you know, you think, all right, well, there are those years, um, this is like before Madlock Buckner. And, Aram. and it's like, well, yes. no, they had Bill Madlock. And, third baseman, you mean, right? Well, it had to be the I first mean, and third baseman both had right. to be bad well, at the I, same I, time. It's easy to, to whittle that down because we've caught, talked ad nauseum about, you know, for all of the flaws that we've had and other hole, or holes that we've had, certainly in center field, um, we've been sort of blessed with first base overall, but even really my point's always been defensively. So uh, before Buckner, I, you know, it's before my time, but I mean, I know 69, Ernie, I mean, I don't know, Jim Hickman, uh, uh, yeah, first baseman, we've had uh, a cornucopia of. So yeah, and I I I, I posited that it was 1956. D. Fondy and Don Hoke. Don Hoke. Yeah, I guarantee you, my dad could. could I'm going to ask him next time I see D. him. D. Fondy uh, hit 269, but with a 290 on base and a 392 slug, nine homers, 46 RBIs, and Don Hoke, 215, 283, 311, five homers, yeah, seven RBIs. I don't think that's obviously small sample size alert. I don't think Patrick wisdom can be that bad, but, but like if you, when you get to, uh, when you get to 57, then uh, Dale long is there and he was Who, good. He's in the record books for something. For, and he was, and he's there for all long. He's there until Ernie moves over. Basically. I think there's somebody in between. Well, so, okay. So Dale long was in the record. Dale long is there forever. I think Dale Long hit a homer in eight straight games or something. Something that Matt, Matt, he came back up when Mattingly made a similar run in the eighties. But now all with the Cubs, I should add. Oh, okay. No, here's so, so you get to uh, sixty, and you think, aha, there's Ed Ed Bushy. But Ron Sano is 
is he's a rookie, right. so, but he's, right, he's going to show you're not going to say all right. Yeah. Well, you're not going to say Ronsano. And remember, he had, he had how many hits did he have in his first doubleheader? I don't remember, but Pat and Ron told us that story a thousand times. So, <laughs> yes. so then you get then you get then Sano's there, and then Ernie moves over to first. So then that stretches it out until all the way until Sano leaves, and it's just there's always at least one or the but, other. But then you good. went right to Madlock for two, two, three more years, yeah. and then, then Buck, yeah, but then Madlock's there, and Buckner shows up, and then Madlock it. leaves, but you still have Buckner. And that carried us through. I mean, even uh, you know, Maddie Stairs for the first half of that McGriff year in one was doable. Yeah, uh, Carlos Pena, late stage Carlos Pena, two thousand nine, yep. solid. And Lee then, um, yeah, you go from there, and then because when does so, somebody in ten? Is that Pena? Yeah, I think Pena was ten. And yeah, then maybe, you get to eleven, you think, okay, that's going to be the year, but then Rizzo shows up. Yes, right. So, we didn't even mention all. Was Arama still there? Uh, we we discussed that he split. He he was dealt late in eleven. He actually yeah. got his toe in the line. He so even pretty if much you... bridged us all the way to Rizzo. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Well, get... a guy can a guy can dream. Now you get to now. That's like ugh. it's early. Let's hope not. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jed. Yeah, well, I, I have a little more faith in wisdom than I do Schwindel, even though people have told me, well, Schwindel always had good numbers at every level in the minors. Fine, whatever. Yeah, I just Frank is – I he feels like he's going to be one of those guys who at the end of the season, if they play him the whole time, you're gonna, his numbers are going to look okay, and he's not going to have really done anything, though. Right. You know, like he'll end up hitting 280 with 20 homers and – 79 RBIs. Like, well, that wasn't awful. And it's like, yeah, but that's not, you know, we need, you need 10 more homers and 30 more RBIs out of that. So, <laughs> well, especially that. if you, what you're bringing defensively, which I know is a bit of an undervalued position uh, compared to others. Uh, it, it helps to have a nice one. And it's not that great when you have one with a cast iron skillet. But honestly, all they have to do is just hand. go back to Japan and get a few more Seiya Suzuki's. Yeah, I know. I, I'm I'm enjoying that. That little fucker is really good, and he basically I, he basically assuaged our concerns right away, and we just get to enjoy it. It's like I I heard a stat that at one point I don't know if this is still true before today's game. I believe that he had had more home runs than uh, swings and misses so far this year. You know, he was sitting on three homers, and apparently. Saw it on Twitter, so great assault. Well, yeah, there was the stat that, like, the first 28 pitches he saw, he only swung at two out of the zone, and one of them... Yes, I saw that one, too. Yes. So it was like, well, yeah, he went out of the zone because it was something he could crush. He basically swung and missed at one pitch. Uh, or went out of the zone for one pitch that he didn't that he didn't get a hit. So, Yep. But that's not... We're not supposed to remember this crap. We're supposed to remember that crap, the old stuff. So, right. What what's on tap for tonight? All right. Let's see. So we're coming off the 1982 Cubs, and um, so we, if the wheel lands on 81 or 83, according to our rules, we have to spin again. Oh, I gotta spin on the right window. Here we go. I do like the sound effect. <laughs> Look at this. Spin it again. We'll be spinning again. We landed on 1981. People are like, why do you guys spin again? It's 
because although 1981, I would get to tell the story of the first Cub game. Correct. Um, Put that one it on would ice. be a little redundant. We'd be talking about. Actually, yeah. we wouldn't be in this case. There's a bit of a clean so break. Different, but yes. that's, we're going to stick with it. But that's right. okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it eventually. We're getting them all eventually. There was a clean break. Is it 86? Yes. <laughs> no! The 1986 Cubs. Ugh. All right. Well, buckle up, folks, because. There's a lot of bad coming up. It's an interesting uh, intermission intermission of the Dallas Green Air. It's the bridge. In fact, one, it would, I, can I just get rolling, I guess, with a yep. few things that can rattle off? Hope It, it won't be hard to get five, I would imagine. Um, but it's basically the bridge season between Dallas Green 1 and Dallas Green 2. You'll know what we're talking about uh, later on in the show. Uh, season opened in St. Louis on a Thursday night, and Manny Trio, I believe, Ooh. was in the opening day lineup. Uh, Cubs lost 2-1 to one to the Cardinals. Uh, it would go down from there. Um, I think 86 was the first season. Harry warned us this was coming throughout the season. The first season, first time in a non-strike shortened season in like forever that the Cubs would n fail to produce a 10 game winner. Yep. And, uh, and it was not, you know, that happened in 81, but that was of course a much shorter season. One guy got close. Uh, okay. Uh, I look forward to discussing that. 86 was the one season in which, um, well, at this point, former Cub villain, and future Cub general manager, Ed Lynch, uh, pitched for the Cubs. Yes, he did. We can take a deep dive in the Ed Lynch era in 1986. Uh, and here's one for you. Ooh. Um, well, I'll, I'll keep it to the Cubs, but there's a, there's a, there's something we will have to talk about that deals with the team across town. But let's just say that uh, the Sun-Times headline writer had a field day on June 13th, which happened to be a Friday and was the day after which Dallas Green had fired his second full-time manager, Jim mm -hmm. Fry. The headline, of course, reading Friday, F-R-E-Y, the 13th. And thus endeth the Jim Fry era, Jim Fry one, the Jim Fry era in which he was a manager. Um, the only less than two seasons from le nearly leading the Cubs to a pennant, uh, there was no joy in Mudville. 86 was uh, a very muddy season overall, metaphorically. So, yeah, the 86 Cubs, they opened in, in Bush Stadium 2. Um, little, Bush you know, they're in Bush Stadium 3. Now, <laughs> That's right. People don't know that. Bush Stadium 2 uh, at night, but it was a Tuesday. Oh, I was off by two days. By two okay. Days. Uh, and you were right. The lineup, for some reason, was Bob Dernier in center, Manny Trio at third. Ryan Sandberg, Moreland, Durham, Davis, one of my all-time favorite Cubs. I wore number 24 in Little League one year for this guy. This year, I would guess. Brian Dayat batting right in front of my all-time favorite Cub, Sean Dunstan. And Rick wow, back-to-back. Back back. Brian Dayat, owner yeah. of two, not one, but two career Grand Slams while a member of the Cubs. And one of them may have occurred this season. If so, we'll have to seek it out. And so this was a matchup, the opening day, this is the 1984 NL East champs against the 1985 NL East champs. And and on paper, the, those names you rattled off, this is still like the 84 Cubs. Of course, is it really, when you look at it from today's perspective, it was everyone was on their last gasp for, not everyone, but uh, thankfully Boa was gone. Um, well, but yeah. a lot of familiar names. And, to these the were the, and these were the Cardinals we hated as children. Vince Coleman, Willie McGee, Tom Herr, Jack Clark, Andy Vance, like Terry Pendleton, uh, Mike Heath. We didn't really care about Mike Heath, former no, Tiger. Catcher. 
Ozzy Smith and John Tudor, who famously injured himself once by punching a fan in the dugout. Not a fanatic. How did an a fan actual get in the dugout? oscillating fan? Why would you punch a fan with your pitching hands? But he did. It chopped yes. it up pretty good. You should save that for real fans. Yes. Fana- I was like, say, wait, remember that time you punched a fan? He did. Yeah, it was it was the plug-in kind. Like the time I believe Kyle Farnsworth kicked a fan. Or a football. Or a baseball, whatever. Well, I punted a baseball one time. Also, I believe I think there were two separate incidents as oh. well. Did he like karate chop or uh karate kick a fan in the dugout? Or did he actually kick a real person? No, it was a fan, like like what uh John Tudor, opening oh, okay. day starter in nineteen eighty six did. Yeah, so the Cardinals, of course, are, are coming off the butt hurt of having a World Series taken from them. So that's I that's I still think Don Deckinger got it right. <laughs> it's bang bang play. It was bang bang. Could go would either taken, way. Would have taken review officials about seven seconds to turn that one around. Whatever. That was uh, was that George Orta? Uh, George Orta or Dane Orge? Remember, it was a little confusing because both Orges played in that World Series. Dane was with the Blue Jays and Gar- no, Garth was with the Blue Jays. And Dane was with the Cardinals. Um, I I think Orta was involved. In I don't the remember play. what I what I do remember about it was that the Cardinals. Um, you know, it's they uh, they always acted like yes, it was wrong, but they always acted like the like the winning run scored on that play. It didn't. It, it the Royals had to do a lot more work, and then they had to win the next night. Well, their point is that it would be one more out; it'd be one to go. It was yeah. the twenty sixth I mean, well, out; well, they this, had to lead. Yeah, we have a we are part it of a fan base it, that we were five outs away from. <laughs> no, I get it. And speaking of pan, fans, you want to punch. There was little Stevie smacking the ball away from Moises. So yes, we understand how yes. you're counting but it was outs not, but it was everything's all, a right. huge deal. It was but not when the you 27th watch it, out. It's, like, it's just yeah. like the Cubs could have bailed that little bastard out. You know, right. Alex Gonzalez could have turned that double play that nobody remembers. Everybody remembers it as, God, remember that time that fan right. almost screwed up the no. um, same Cardinals, with the Cardinals? They could have been like, yeah. hey, remember that they time they held, almost screwed us out of a World Series? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they, they bathed themselves in glory in game seven. They got beat like. Well, Joaquin, Joaquin, Joaquin got shit, thrown right? out. And, yeah, it was an absolute disgrace to baseball, really. But they didn't care. They thought that they were they justified. They should have shuttered the franchise that night. It was, they, were, they humiliated <laughs> the sport. sport. Should have they just truly said, right, did. Never, or at least, guys, yeah, no suspended more. them for a season or two. No uh, but instead, they were around in April. And, uh, you know, this was the Whitey Herzog Cardinals. Um, you like Whitey, though, right? Admit that you kind of, and not just because you sat near him in a spring training game, or did you hate Whitey? Is it, I, I, and I've confessed this before. I, I don't feel it's anything I'm embarrassed about. I had a white hot loathing for the Mets, but I was ambivalent about the Cardinals. As yeah, a kid. I know. I was, I was the same way. I hated the Mets. I didn't like the Cardinals, but I didn't really care. I didn't know enough yet. Um, it's, it seemed when the Cardinals were good, the Cubs were. I did not, Cubs, however. Like I, I remember rooting for the Brewers in the '82 World Series. Me too, so totally. And I know I was happy the Royals won. Um, I can't remember who so I was. Maybe I had, with. maybe I had started my. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think I probably, as a kid, um, given the duds that we had for managers, I remember I probably thinking, I wish the Cubs had. I remember really when Whitey retired, and then he was, you know, still around. I remember. Thinking the Cubs should hire Whitey Herzog because a he's a good manager, b it would drive the Cardinals nuts, but they never did it. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, he worked for the Angels, didn't he, into the mid-90s, I think. You know, he was pretty old. You know, he'd been around. He's a lifer. It's like somebody should tell the Cardinals, that if you really want to get under Cub fans' skin, hire Dale's fame to be your manager. That was crazy. Or Don't David or, or David Ross. Yeah. Yeah. But no, um, yeah, 86, uh, you know, 86 Cubs are optimistic still. We haven't discussed either 84 or 85, but we we caught that buzz. And so even though you and I were already fans before that, they could have, they, they could have been and had been shitty until 84. And boom, there was the payoff. So, that, you know, you're in for life. And an uh, '85 got off to a good start and went sideways. So '86, it was like, all right. The band is back together, and uh, yeah, they still had uh, they still had Eckersley, Sutcliffe, Sanderson, and Trout. Um, the other two guys, the other two the guys who made more than uh, eight starts would be Ed Lynch and Jamie, and Jamie Moyer. Okay, Moyer got the call up. Uh, Greg Maddox, that could have been one of my five facts. Made his oh, major yeah, debut. Greg. Greg made six star, five starts. Yeah, he, he was a September call up. He was terrible. I can see why they let him go. Two and four, right? Two and four with a five fifty two ERA. Moyer was seven and four with a five oh five ERA. Right, year. and then next year Maddox was six and fourteen, and, Mo- and uh, Moyer had a winning record. Although I'm sure the peripherals would tell you that. Uh, Maddox would be a better pitcher, and what I was, I, what was it? Fifteen-year-old me was shocked when Jerome Holtzman had an article with Big Dick Pohl, um talking about how Maddox was going to be something special, and I'm like, "What are you talking about? Moyer was thirteen and seven, or whatever, or maybe ten and I, I don't know. They, they, they're both Dallas Green draft picks. They both end up having tremendous careers. They're both, you know, obvious uh, pieces of evidence when you want to make a case for Dallas Green, but uh, yeah, and they both made their debut in 86. So, and Harry would remind us that uh, Jamie was at that time dating Notre Dame basketball yes. coach, Digger Phelps's daughter, Karen, who of course worked for WGN. The whole thing's a big fishbowl, but they, I believe they would marry. So Jamie Moyer, right? Digger Phelps is his father-in-law. Yes, that is, that is correct. Um, yeah, there's just, uh, there's a lot of 84 Cubs still on this team. Obviously, Lee Smith was still there. George Frazier, who lost four World Series games once. Three. Oh, three. That's right. Just, three. Still, There's two at the time. Lost four. At one time, there were only two pitchers who had lost three games in a World Series. And they were George Frazier and Calvin Schiraldi. And the Cubs acquired both of them after they did it. Is that a fact? Yes. I have to look. Wow. Like, hey, I like the, I like the cut of, this, of their jib. Let's get them. Shiraldi actually got tagged with three losses in the 86 World Series. I was, that's what I was led to believe. Now I'm afraid to look it up. Yeah, I may have to fact check you there, uh, Lou. My best, Mark. Let me question your police work there, Lou. Uh, I know what Frazier did. I remember like my dad, like, oh, but poor George Frazier. And then, of course, he was the guy that the Cubs got along with Rick Sutcliffe and Ron Hassey. Uh, in 84. And so uh, we, I guess we, you know, from, from Mel Hall, Frazier was never uh from Mel Hall and Joe Carter and Daryl Banks and Don Schulze, I, I believe. But oh, um, shit. Calvin was, he was 0 and 3 in that postseason. Postseason. So we lost an LCS game. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to do. Um, it didn't mean Frazier was terrible. I mean, he just, he was, you know, on a good team and he had to be, had, uh, you gotta be, you gotta be pretty good well. to lose three World Series games. <laughs> on, on some level, that's true. Man, you're on a, you're on a good team, and your manager keeps sending you out there. 
George Frazier was a non-factor for the Cubs, so he didn't break our hearts like he did the Yankees. He may not have pitched at all in the uh, LCS against the Padres. I do remember uh, he himself was dealt late in the 86 season, and on his way out the door, absolutely tore Harry Carey a new asshole, which was pretty funny because Harry, of course, uh, didn't hesitate to respond uh, in the in the papers. I'm surprised Marquis hasn't hired um George Frazier, then. <laughs> right. To dump more, another pile of shit onto Harry Carey, which seems to be their motive. He is, uh, he, well, he's not anymore, but for a long time, he was the he was the analyst for the Colorado Rockies. Was George Frazier. He has a really good voice. No kidding. Yep. Yeah, there is a... Uh... And you wouldn't know from his baseball reference picture. But kind of a handsome guy, so you can see why he went into announcing. But man, that picture in Baseball Reference, whoo! Well, he was a as a player. I mean, Actually, I don't if you know, hover I over no it, what he looks his, like. his Cub one pops up, and he looks uh, much more like a human than the Yankee one with the sunken eye. He looks like he literally just got punched in both eyes. And what happened there, George? Uh, you'll have to post it. What what I'm doing is finding the article in which George Frazier was uh, released and his quote, which I was obliquely uh, trying to remember, said uh, regarding former teammates, Frazier, the guys in the clubhouse are more worried about what Harry Carey says on television than what Dallas Green says, because Harry's bigger. Harry has a bigger influence on the fans. It's an idiotic comment. I don't think any uh, player is going to listen to uh, uh, Harry before Dallas Green, but I was I was I remember there's no. Uh, retort from Harry in this article, which was uh, written by Fred Mitchell, our, our, oh, yeah. our old friend. Um, but I do recall Harry fucking blasting him back or something. Maybe I misremember that. This this is pre-stroke Harry, so it's like kind of the last of what you'd get, you know, that 90% of the people that think they know Harry Carey don't even are aware of. Yeah, this is still really good, Harry. This is... And this would have been... Um... This would have been like the. This was a good season to have Harry if, as a fan. Like '84 was because when games after '84, Harry was great. He was on top of it. '85, that was the season where they were, you know, they were in it until every, all the pitchers got hurt and they had a long losing streak. Thirteen games, right? I was I went to Thir- basketball camp. That's 80, and I was gone for a week and I came home and I they was, still hadn't won a game. Right. I was at Jerry Sloan. You were at somebody else's. Yeah. I was at uh, University of Dubuque basketball camp. I only went to the finest basketball camps and. Um, <laughs> Only to Aurora, and uh, we came back on the first day back. We went to a Cub game, and they broke the. You mentioned that in uh, in a recent one, um, yeah, they beat the Mets to snap the streak. As it turned out, their number that was eighty five. We'll see. So eighty six, they get off to a red hot start of two and eight. So season's over after ten games, and that's really when you want Harry, because Harry's not going to put on this bullshit. Well, you know, um, the, you know the, the the guys are really, you know, Harry's going to like, no matter, these were their 84 heroes, but when they need to get ripped, Harry's going to rip. And well, it seemed like the as one a fan, that's what boy. you want. You don't want the announcer sugarcoating all this shit. If you see that it's crap, you want the announcer to say it's crap. And that's what Harry would do. Well, I think some people would say not to play devil's advocate is that would be, uh, an issue with Harry where, for example, take Jody Davis, for whom Harry would literally sing songs about. Yeah. Uh, but if I, I kind of, in my mind, can quickly associate how quickly Harry would just pop it up. 
you know, and Jody, you know, was a good player. But he was a, you know, 240 hitter and yeah. like. He was a good uh, hitter for a catcher. Now, he was a younger guy. So, I don't know. Was he ragging on the old guy? He still had Sarge and Say, who were both completely at the end of their, uh, at the end of the line. Well, I mean, uh, it, it, it was, was no, Keith, Ken, no Ken Boyer. It was Keith Moreland's last season in wasn't right it, field. Wasn't it Ken what? Boyer that Harry just savaged? I think you mentioned that. Just I think like, you, you just, educated him. He hated him, and he just let him fucking have it all the time. I don't remember <laughs> that there were I don't think anybody like that. It was more a case of when when somebody made a bad play, Harry let you know it was a bad play, which seems like announcing 101, but it's not. It's, not, it's certainly not how most guys do it now. Well, Pat Hughes is a great announcer, but he will never go on that side. He right. does. He kind of sometimes he euphemizes, if I can bastardize that word. I mean, like, so Boog, like when, when Schwindel dropped that ball on, uh, it, he ended up being an out, but the uh, very first play of the game the other day, Boog was like, and over to Schwindel, Jesus, look at that piece of shit. He can't even catch a fuck. That ball was thrown eight hear, feet in the air underhand need... and that motherfucker dropped it. Jesus right. Christ. He's like, right. he goes, holy shit, JD, have you ever seen anybody that bad? And Jim Shea's like, nope, I don't think I have. See, that's what we like. That's it. Actually, Harry Doyle or Her- you Harry imagine, Carey. Can you imagine if that well, actually happened? Well, I mean, be the greatest thing ever, and they'd all everybody be fired immediately. Like they wouldn't even finish the you wouldn't even finish the inning, much less the game. Right, Tom Brenneman would have had a longer <laughs> duration. <laughs> Taylor's up there doing the play-by-play. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, so it's uh, It's fifth season of Harry. It's the fourth season of Stoney. So they're kind of hitting their stride now. You know, there is that buzz from '84, but it was it was pretty obvious early on that uh, there was nothing left in the tank. And uh, reinforcements were on the way. Unfortunately, uh, the, the Tribune, the powers that be, were not in a position to recognize that, and so they would, you know, a year and a half later would sabotage affairs. But it was uh, it was an interesting dip uh, between the two those two Dallas Green periods because uh, I almost it, until we opened this up tonight had kind of forgotten just how many '84 Cubs were still on the team then and how washed up they all suddenly were. It seemed. Well, I mean, Keith Moreland, I love Keith Moreland, but his, it was his last season in right. He he graciously manned and courageously manned third base the next year when yeah, Dawson got terrible. there to, to, hold, to, to hold it over till the great van. So I, he got one more year, two years with the Tigers. and But, you know, Moreland was, didn't end up playing two seasons. I'm pretty sure Matthews and Say were done. We thought Eckersley was done when they got rid of him, yeah. obviously, the whole second act there. Uh, and then I, Sanderson, who was perpetually hurt, was one of the three guys that hung on till '89. But uh, you know, Trout was '86 the year Trout got dealt after throwing consecutive shutouts. Might have been. Um, so, but they, uh, that pretty much that whole '84 team was, was still still intact. Well, but it was the, just a shell. So the season almost turned around for him on uh, what day was this? It was game eleven. <laughs> So Pat, was, Hughes is, Pat Hughes' Pat turning point yeah. in game eleven. At, it, was, it was a game at Wrigley, April twenty second, nineteen eighty six. Uh, capacity crowd of eight thousand seven hundred and forty seven. <laughs> we're there to see. Um, it was a rematch of uh, well, maybe not. It was John Tudor and oh Steve Trout. And the Cubs were two and eight, and and floundering. And it was scoreless going into the bottom of the eighth. Um, 
when Keith Moreland drove in Sandberg uh, to put the Cubs up one nothing, and then Gary Matthews, uh, he singled in Moreland. Cubs are up 2 nothing, going to the top of the ninth. Woo-hoo, here we go. Um, the Arthur? The Well, I don't know. Maybe this is what got Jim Fry fired. So Trout started the inning and immediately gets the first two guys out. Jack Clark, Tito Landrum. Boom, boom. Wow. Fans, all 8,000 fans are on their feet getting ready. They're getting ready to play Go Cubs Go. Actually, that wasn't a thing. Um, it was not. But people standing up with two outs had become a thing in the pre- in previous yes. year or so. Uh, Trout walked Mike Heath and then oh. um, gave up a single to Terry Jesus Pendleton. Trout. So out comes Jim Fry in his little blue running shoes. And no, it's, uh, <laughs> he brings in. Jay Baller. Okay. Um, Lee is it, it raises the question, why was Lee must not, and he didn't have any save opportunities, as you point out, they were two and eight. Yeah. I don't recall Lee Smith being hurt. He may have been. But that's I, mean, right. I don't recall the Cubs being two and eight. I know they're miserable, but I don't, that was an awful start, really yeah. crushing 14-year-old human. Maybe just, right maybe Fry liked the matchup of Jay Baller's prodigious chest hair against um, St. Louis pinch hitter and ruddy-faced Clint Hurdle. Now, this would have been Clint. Wow. Like, he wasn't Clint like the number one pick in the draft. He was like, I don't know about shit. that, but he was the so-called uh, Sports Illustrated cover boy yeah. when the Royals were emerging as pennant contenders in 1980. And he was he, not George Brett, was put on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Well, he was good that day. He tripled and tied the game at two. Uh, that's uh, an end of his career. It's Clint Hurdle, by the way. Jay got Jerry be. White. Jerry White. There's a perfect Cardinal name. Um, to fly out to yeah. center. And Cubs are, you know, it's 2-2. But with uh, two outs in the bottom of the ninth, Ryan Sandberg is up, and the... There are runners at second and third. Manny Trio's on third. Thad Bosley is on second. Go on twenty-seven. Well, another out. eighty-four. Only count. one out. A lot of stuff happened, but there's only one out. Uh, Sandberg has a fly ball to deep center. Manny Trio scores. Cubs win three-two. They're on their way. Three and eight. Terrible start is in the rearview mirror. They win the next day, and they win the day after that, and they're five and eight. And here we go. And yep. they finish the month seven and twelve. So. That was the last, that was the, that was that right there was the death rattle. I'd like to think that in that flurry of games that everybody, including the Penguin and Sarge, all like had one last RBI uh, on their way out the door. Just because. One last RBI. I'm looking up, uh, well, you know, I mean, was Matthews was, was Matthews even on, I feel like Matthews wasn't even on the team in June and. I think I thought did say end up staying on the team the whole season. He may have. I don't know. I mean, you thought say was old on a good team in '84. Yeah. Well, that's the thing you were talking about. They like suddenly got old. They suddenly got old because the um the they were all all the guys they got for the '84 Cup. I mean, Dallas was just patching holes with cast off yes. Phillies and Dodgers. Basically, it's like give me whatever. Well, you know. g- good ones though. Yeah, but old guys, guys who those teams are like, all right, this guy's got one, maybe one good year left. And apparently the Cubs want to squeeze it out so they can have him. So what, what was the date on that, uh, the, the game where they, the turning point when the Cubs back and went three and eight? 
April because because uh, Lee Smith's uh, well, I'll have to double check that I lost it for a second. His game log, I'm just mystified because it, it always seemed like uh, Ole was always healthy. And like why and Jay Baller uh, made his debut the year before. He was like this part of this coterie of Cub pitchers that were not nearly ever ready for prime time when that entire rotation went on the DL in 85. The Baller, Dave Engel, God, I can't even Dave Gumpert me. I can't remember who else it would be. By the way, uh, no, Lee Smith, well, Lee Smith's first uh, appearance was April 11th. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's sleep. And Hey, if Johnny Oates couldn't wake him up in the dugout, in the and that's why. That's why. Uh, yeah, Lee, just a couple. What a year later? Two years later? When did Fry trade him? Eighty-seven, right? After the eighty-seven season. After eighty-seven season, yeah. When you could argue that he cost Sutcliffe as Cy Young by blowing one too many games for for the Red Baron, but he was still, as he would prove, pretty damn good. Well, let's see. Why don't we go through? I'll go through here quick, and we'll figure. We'll find out who these guys all got traded for <laughs> as '86 Cubs are leaving town. I um, like it. Let's see. Was this uh, or who they even got traded to? Because I think Say got traded to Oakland, but I couldn't tell you for who. Uh, Garmin or Gammon or something. I'm going to just say that Ron Say got Peter traded Gammon's? to Oakland for uh, for for a ball player whose last name starts with the letter G. I could be way off. Sarge uh, was probably released. Sarge, or Sarge, was Sarge the survived Mariners? the season. He got traded on January 30th, 1987 to the A's Damn. for Luis Quinones. I remember Luis Quinones. He played the for the 87 Cubs. Yeah, he had a double in Shea Stadium in a game on a Saturday night once. I remember watching it on TV. Uh, Gary so Matthews I was wrong about made, that. Gary Matthews made it until 1987. He was traded in July to the Mariners. For a player named later, who became Dave Hartnett. Whatever that is. In relation to Gabby. Uh, Ron Say then also traded to Oakland, or am I just conflating stuff? Because I, I'm obviously way off base. I had no idea that Sarge made it through the season. I felt like he was really well, yeah, say, done. Quinones was a A. Sarge got traded to the Mariners. Right. Eventually, I thought you said he got traded. They to both the made a, it through the, the eighty-seven Oakland. season, or they made it through eighty-six. Sarge made it right. into See? 87. Okay. So it comes in exactly clean house. Moral and no. we know he was still around. Uh, let's see. third consecutive start in center field. How many times can Dernier, you say that Dernier about him? made it through 87. I don't know if he if he was the opening day center fielder in '87, but that I'm pretty sure is the is the mark, right, Andy? In our lifetime, center fielders opening day four consecutive. Bobby D might have it. Well, yeah, until Jason Hayward, it does like ten. <laughs> no, he's done. That contract's over. You can't scare me. Um, man, when did these guys? Eck didn't get traded till '87. None of these guys left in '86. I'm off. Yeah, I thought they all kind of got purged after '86. '87 felt '87 felt different. Maybe Charles he got dealt during thought. the '87 season. No, it was '87. Now that I think about '86 might have been the year he fell off a station. '87, they backed the truck up, but they didn't get rid of anybody in '86. That, that ruins this. All right. Well, they I'll have to readjust my narrative. 
100%. Obviously, this was a miserable team. When you look at the record, it was one of those th- – at this point, like in my fandom, I'd like like chronicled in my head, I'd, I'd witnessed like seven seasons. And the, at this point, the 81 season was far and away the worst. In retrospect, that 80 season that we covered was awful too, but it didn't seem to resonate as much. But in short order, this 86 season really kind of over time ranks – really in my head ranks up there as one of the worst. Um, and I, I think it's the thing is I didn't really know it at the time. I think that's the thing. They, I think we were still a little bit euphoric. We were still seeing our heroes from '84. Uh, and then looking back, it was just all the signs were there, and it's just incredible. It's kind of I wonder what was going on where Dallas Green actually brought all those guys back. Maybe, you know, maybe it was a misfire on the from the on the part of the great Dallas Green. Well, was it though? Do you think he was trying to just ring out? Mini tank. Well, bring out an extra season out of these guys because the his vaunted farm system was starting to bear fruit, and those guys weren't ready yet. I mean, we see he brings right. He brings Moyer up. He brings Maddox up. Rafael Palmero plays. Dunstan's Dave, already there. Dunstan's there. Dave Martinez makes his debut in '86. Yep. So I wonder and, if and it Palmero was, did too, right? Yes, Palmero did. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. It's starting to very tan. Um, Damon Berryhill is probably sitting at. Double A, waiting to waiting for his big Pittsfield uh, break. Uh, Mark Grace is wandering around somewhere. No, it, it wasn't until '87 where Mark Grace and Dwight Smith were both on our rate were on our radar uh, when the Sporting News would would uh, update us on their exploits at Double A. Was this the great? Know. Was it the great? Was '86 the great Pittsfield Cubs though? Could have been, but uh, 87 was, I think, when Grace and Smith, I don't think whatever version of the um, of the prospect perverts were around back then, I don't know how much Grace would have been on the radar in 86 as much as 87. Uh, let's see. The 86, uh, probably not. This is probably not the team that everybody – I mean, there's some names on here. Darren Jackson, Les Lacknaster. Yeah, Jackson uh, got called up in 85. Maddox spent some and, time there. Moyer spent some time there. Pombrero spent some time there. Rolando Rooms. Gary Varsho. Right. Phil Stevenson. So uh, this David, is... Uh, Damon Tuesday. Berryhill. Pookie Bernstein. Uh, you're joking, right? No, Pookie Bernstein. Was a Cub in 86? He's born in Las Vegas. No, the Pittsfield Cub. Is that why I know that name? Was he like a prospect that would have... Well, once you heard the name Pookie Bernstein, you're not going to forget it. Right, right. Kind of like Razor Shines. So this was Dallas Green's fifth season. So, you know, if you're, at minimum, a competent GM, not you know, if you in other words, if you're not Ed Lynch, after a year, in year five, you should be, you should be, you know, seeing. Yeah, your minor, your, your pick should be bearing fruit. And they kind of are, but you couldn't really recognize it yet at the time because you didn't know how good any of these guys were. Dunstan, we're still holding out hope. Probably his first quasi-full season. I don't know if he got hurt or not. You know, he got the early call up in 85 on opening day and then got sent down because he obviously wasn't ready. I don't know if he spent any time in the minors in 86. He still struggled. 150 Uh, games for the Cubs, so he was up Oh, damn. All right. 17 over 68 RBIs. Not bad for a nineteen eighty five eighty six two fifty with a two seventy eight on base. All right, how about this slug? So he like oh he strikes out all the time. He struck out one hundred and fourteen times in six hundred and eleven plate appearances. Yeah, today that's, that would be like that's he, pretty. They'd be pleasure. like, hey, this guy, this guy's a contact hitter. Well, not with that on base though. Only right? struck that's out one hundred fourteen times. What do you mean? He walked, um, he walked twenty one times. 
in 600 plate appearances. Yeah. Um, well, I bet you he had the at least the in the top three slugging percentages for shortstops in 1986. Oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah. 17 for a shortstop. 37 doubles, three triples, and 17 homers. And he only slugged 411. I guess because he has all those at bats. Yeah, all those at bats he gave away. Yeah. <laughs> 250, right. He never walked. So lots of, lots of subtraction. Thad Bosley uh, was a uh, was an 86 Cub. Unfortunately, oh, before, the Steve... uh, I didn't get into the my the Pookie Bernstein. Pookie Bernstein, his real name is not Pookie. Quite a bit ridiculous. That's that's a shame. Real name is Nahamas Bernstein. N-E-H-A-M-E-S. He was born on uh, November 28, 1960 in Las Vegas. He primarily an outfielder, played some second base. Bats right, throws, he th- batted right, threw right, and maybe he still does. I don't know. Uh, 5'9", 170. He went to Lewis and Clark State. In Portland? Uh, oh, Illinois. Now, there's a community college, Lewis and Clark, downstate, and then there's Lewis and Clark uh, uh, out in the Pacific Northwest. Lewis Clark State College the- is in Lewiston, Idaho. Pookie compiled a career batting average of 279 with 33 homers, 221 RBIs in 733 games. Played for the Batavia Trojans, the Waterloo Indians, the Buffalo Bisons, the Pittsfield Cubs, the Iowa Cubs, and the Peoria Chiefs. Uh, played from 1982 to 1989. That's all you need to know. Almost about a about Pookie Bird. A cra- who never played for the Davis. Cubs, but he played on the Pittsfield Cubs, which I thought was the... Maybe it was the 87 Pittsfield Cup. I mean, there was a... They were like the runaway. 87 was, was Mark Grace and Dwight Smith. That's all I can tell you. They were like the one and two in the league uh, for hitting. And it would be two years from there uh, that Smith would make his debut my little, as the runner-up. I have a minor league. It's a figurine. It's not even a uh, – I should show it to um, Frank Schwindel because it's, it's Mark Grace showing you the proper way to catch a ball at first base. Uh, it's from Peoria, though. He's a Peoria chief. I saw the P on the hat and thought for a second maybe it was Pittsfield, but it's not. It's a Mark Grace Peoria Chief? Yeah. He might have been a Peoria Chief in 1986 with teammate Jeff Pico, who both married sisters, I want to say, one of whom would leave her husband and marry Henry Hills. Not really Henry Hill, but really old. That's fabulous actress Michelle Grace. If you know her from all the fine films like, uh, who knows? Has Mike worked with her? Have you asked him? I should ask him. Maybe. Oh, good. No. Nice lady. Nice lady. Make a note of that. Uh, one of my favorite Cubs was on the 86 Cubs. Um, Cleotha, said Sean. Cleotha Chico Walker. Yes. Chico, which, you know, my bro- I had a brother, a uh, buddy of uh, my brother's that was trying in earnest to get a Chico chant in the uh, bleachers sung to Peter Gabriel's Bico. Chico. I feel like we talked about Chico. this guy last Chico. week. For no we may reason. have. No, this, uh, uh, I'm going to bring somebody else. I think it was... Not Chico. There is oh. a, on the 86 Cubs, there is a uh, a guy who is a current Major League manager who is going to be a Hall of Famer, most certainly, as a manager. Uh, bum, 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 the Cubs bum. may have beaten him in a World Series. 
Terry Francona. Terry Francona was an 86. I mentioned Francona was on 86. I remember Francona as a player, as a pesky player, like a Bill Buckner light. Like this is what like Buckner feels like to other teams. Obviously, he would have been a poor man's Buckner. He was an expo on a good expos teams. They couldn't break into the lineup because they had all, all that offensive force. You know, they had Warren Cromartie. And even after Ellis Valentine got hurt and they moved Tim Raines around, they had Dawson. They had, uh, well, Chris Spire. Oh, but, they, you know, Larry Parrish was kind of bad. And then Tim Wallet came in. And, um, uh, you, you know, just in, in all around pretty, uh, you know, pretty solid team. Um, and, but Francona, it seemed like could, like, we seemed like this line drive hitter, kind of a clutchy hitter that I always hated, uh, when the Cubs pitched against. And then he was on the Cubs in 86. And then I was like, uh, yeah, he was, he's not, he was fine. Yeah. Uh, good old number 16. He would play 10 seasons in the big leagues and have a career batting average of 274. Okay. Maybe a couple. He had a base average of 300 and a slug of 351. So, yeah. So, I don't know. I had an irrational fear of Terry Francona. Just a line drive. He looked like a smart, good hitter. And he may have he been. He looked but like he should be able to hit have any better power. than he did. Did he have any seasons with the Expos where he was close to 300? Or did he even. I don't think he ever actually played every day for the Expos. His career batting average for the Expos was 290. Okay, hit, uh, so the most games he played, well, let's see. Uh, he hit 321 for him one year, but only in 46 games. He hit 346 for him one year, but only in 58 games. Right. In 120 games in 83, he hit 257, 273, 352. Um, it's just a question of why aren't you playing this guy? He got released in spring training of 1986, and that's when the Cubs scooped him up. Yeah. And uh, I see it now. Oh, good old 608 OPS, huh? Yes, I clearly remember uh, Terry Francona as a member of the 86 Cubs. Let's see, were any other what future a, Hall of Fame managers on the 86 What a Cubs? disappointment he was. Uh, let's see, Chris Spire, future Hall of Fame third base coach. Would that count? Oh, Dave uh, Martinez. So the Cubs had two, there's two World Series managers on this on this team. How about that? Terry Francona Fun and fact. Martinez. One played for, one played for, oh, never mind. I was stretching some sort of an Expos Nationals connection, but it's not worth it. And then, of course, it's Hall of Fame general manager, Ed Lynch. Correct. Yeah, the team had all kinds of sort of uh, back of the room hidden talent. So the Ed Lynch thing was great. Um, you know, he had uh, he played for the Mets for the hated Mets uh, for seven years. He played for those dog shit Met teams in the early '80s. They're just awful, and here and they are. Suddenly, they're good. on the eight, he's on the '86 Mets. They are tearing through baseball on their way to I forget how many they won 105 games. I think this um, was the Mets season. I mean, it was, and there it is. And there's good old Eddie Lynch. Big, tall, goofy-looking guy. Was he 6'7", six, 6'6"? Six, six? Um, the Cubs and Mets had gotten into a fight. Was this 85 or was it earlier? Was it early? No, 86? no. It's a it's a very iconic moment of the 84 season, oh, it is 84. in fact. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, we will pull that one apart in great granular detail when the wheel spins on 84. So anyway, yeah. get, getting down towards the trade deadline. But you're right though. He's on, he's on this Mets team. He, he, he's a mediocre pitcher on a lousy Mets team that also the team gets good. And he's somehow decent enough to go along for the Ascension. 
until 86 when, you know, the yeah. Cubs have cycled back to being shitty and the Mets have continued to trend upward. And I don't know when the trade deadline was in 86 because it used to be early. Like in 84, it was like June 15th. The, um, yep. the Sutcliffe really, really. trade had to happen in June and then there was all the weird stuff that held it up. And Another Dallas a, Green kind of fumble. Great, he wasn't perfect. Great, great story in 84 about Billy Connors yelling at um, Rick Sutcliffe. It's great. We'll save it for the 84 one. Absolutely. Um, but it's June 30th. Ed Lynch is on the Mets. They are cruising along. And he, uh, who would this have been? Like Frank Cashin calls him up to his office and says, hey, Eddie, I, want, I need to talk to you. Uh, you've been traded to the Cubs because we couldn't turn down a chance to get not one, but two Daves. Dave Lenderman and Dave Liddell. Don't know either. No, nope, could have been made up. And there, Ed Lynch became. He went. He lost a lot of games in the standings that day, and he was an '86 <laughs> Cub. Serves him right for his future misdeeds. Yep. For the for the sins. How do for we know that did. his tenure as our manager wasn't just him? Yeah. Just just payback. Like fuck these guys. I'm going to screw this up. Right. Up. Just like just like Andy McPhail trying to cut the the legs out from under the Cubs in '89 by handing the Mets. Uh, uh, Kevin Tappany and Rick Agwell, or right, handing them Frank Viola in exchange for Tappany and Aguilera so that the Mets could run down the Cubs. Yep. So screw both of those guys. Um, okay, so we talked about the fact this was a Cub team that didn't have a single double-digit winner on the staff. It had it actually had one starting pitcher and one relief pitcher who won nine games. Ooh, do I get the guess? Because I, I didn't look. The the relief pitcher, it's not a good sign. Well, it's not. It's not Rick because Sutcliffe was like four and twelve that year. I want to say. Um, yeah, well, the starting pitcher was. Um, wait, it was a reliever that won nine games. Is that what you're two. saying? I didn't notice. This. There's two. There's a starter and a reliever. Both won nine games. The starter. Uh, did, 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 uh, was it Trout? It couldn't have been Sanderson. It was. Scott Sanderson, 9 and 11, 419 ERA. He made 28 starts, 38 appearances. Was the reliever the aforementioned Hirsute Jay Baller? No, but it's a very bad sign that this guy had 18 decisions. Very bad. 18 decisions? Yes, 9 and 9. Smith. Lee Smith. Was 9 and 9? 9 and 9. 90 innings pitched. He had 9 wins, 9 losses, and 31 saves. He was getting it done, kind of. Wow. Wait a second. That, how is that possible? Is that the most decision? No, because not the most decision, but it's certainly in the team photo. 18 decisions for a fucking closer? Wow. Yeah, he would have <laughs> been the most other than – Eck was 6 and 11. 17. So he's got to beat. Sutcliffe was 5 and 14. So they, uh, 5 and 14. There's 19. Me, right. was, Sanderson okay. was 9 and 11. That was, he had 20. All right. So all right. he was so, the, the third most on the team as the closer. Third most decisions. What a bizarre season. I can't ex- I can't account for that offhand. Can you? What would that I – because mean, he had 31 say. I mean, do they keep track of blown saves as far back as 86? That wouldn't be hard. Uh, if, I had to, have, somebody had to wake up Jerome Holtzman and ask him to, to define it. <laughs> Hey, Jerome, what do we call it when they don't get a save? Blow me. I think in 86, Jerome Jerome may have still been uh, on the ball in 86. Like I said, he he wrote the eye-opening article that a 15-year-old Huey read that, like, how do you – don't tell me Greg Maddox is going to be good. He's he's 4'9". 
Uh, let's see. He blew uh, blew a save on April twelfth. He blew a save on uh, May thirteenth. Um, he must have lost those. So when Lee shit the tub, he shit the tub. Blew hard. a save on July 9th, but got the win. He got the red yeah. blown win. Uh, blew one on the July twenty seventh. Uh, August twenty fifth. He had, you know, oh, blown had, saves. They do tally him up. He had eight blown saves, so he was blown saves were probably thirty nine. Blown saves were probably a lot. To give perspective, though, kids, blown saves were probably a lot more common back then when relievers were tasked with uh, a little bit of an in, in game, a higher in game workload. Because I'm sure Smith, it wasn't until Larusa and Eckersley where uh, relievers were closers were pretty much just one inning, one and done. So I'm sure Smitty had a you know, may have come in in the seventh, pull the Cubs' fat out of the fire, and then run out of gas in the ninth. I don't know. How about this? Six of his eight blown saves, he came in in the eighth inning. Just six, though? Okay. So he only Any in two, the seventh? He only blew okay. two saves. That he came in the ninth. In Presu- ninth. Presumably clean, although, no, you just referred to a game that he can't. No, he didn't pitch that game. The game in which Trout uh, lost a shutout with two outs, and then Jay Baller blew the save there. Sounds like Jim Fry was just fucking working him like a goddamn horse. 18 decisions, 31 saves. It somehow showed some mercy on him when the Cubs were 2-8 and eight and uh, brought in Jay Baller to blow the save. A game in which the Cubs would still win, but... Yeah, um, he pitched... So that game was on April 22nd. He... Um... Let's see. He had pitched on the 15th, 17th, and 20th. He had thrown... Oh, he threw, th- he threw three innings on the 17th, an inning and a third on the 20th. So he may have simply been unavailable on the 22nd. Okay. So even then, old school managers a use one. a little bit of so, oh, discretion. He, gets a, oh, he got a win here. On April 17th, he came in in the 11th, pitched three innings, <laughs> and he got a win. <laughs> Well, there you go. He earned it. Why? Why is your closer pitching three innings in April? I want to uh, just for trivia different purposes, game back then, I guess. Point out to a game that occurred on Sunday, April twentieth. Anniversary is coming up. Nothing about this game is that interesting. I'm just going to do it to tell you that because um, I remember I, I, I've linked these two events in my in my mind. It in fact happened to be a 17 inning Cubs game, but it was also occurring at the same time in which Chicago Bull thir- third year guard Michael Jordan was in the process of dumping 63 points on top of the would be NBA champion and in the midst of their greatest individual season during the Larry Bird era, Boston Celtics in a triple overtime game. And I remember, like, whenever there'd be a timeout and just, like, our heart is just stopping watching this Bulls-Celtics game, flipping back to the Cubs. Oh, they're going into another inning. And I was, like, bad-mouthing. Remember bad-mouthing baseball? Baseball is so boring. Like, the most thrilling Bulls game of my life juxtaposed with this, like, cold April Sunday game at Wrigley Field, this fucking – taffy pull between two shitty teams because the Giants may have been a little bit on the rise but up, up until this point in our fandom they were perennially woeful and so they were of no consequence but the game itself dragged on and on and on and it was like, kind of like a nice respite 
to help us calm down. Like Jordan again, Tizer, we go to a second overtime. We'll come back after this commercial break. Oh my God, I can't take it. Let's put on this dreadful 17 inning Cubs game. And so we did. Well, it's gotta be one of the longest games in baseball history. It started well, 17 on, it started on April 20th. It didn't end until August 11th. Holy is this our second suspended game? Holy uh, shit. We should be, yes. we should keep track well, of there's these. No light, because there's I, no way you could play a 17 inning game. Especially in, in April. April. I I mentioned uh, on the last podcast, when, or was it the 1980? No, it was the last one, 82, because the 21 inning game. Now we talked about how back then you would have uh, postponed, of course, delayed games, uh, whatnot. Games, though, that were tied or like undecided uh, before nine innings were otherwise washed out. But only when there was a suspended – the only time you'd ever see a suspended game in which they would resume it and not cut it short or, or wash it out, uh, the only times that ever, ever happened, and it never – it might happen now for different reasons, but the only time it happened back then would involve Cubs games at Wrigley Field, and this would be another one. So, yeah, I guess they didn't even finish that game. Jordan was fucking smoking a cigar and sitting in a hot tub and calming down, and the Cubs game was still – it would be interesting. You can't, in you can't tell from the baseball reference thing, but how many guys weren't around to finish the game? Like how many players played? Because if you look at how many guys Sunday. played in the game, so they didn't they didn't resume it till the second time with uh, San Fran came, right? Well, it was Pirates. They didn't resume it till a Pirates. They didn't resume I, it till August. My bad. I was saying San Fran. Oh. For some reason in my head, it was the Giants. Never mind. So I mean, yeah, you've Pirates. made it through half the season. Well, almost two thirds of the season and the trade deadline. A bunch of these guys are gone, and if you look at the box score, there's too many guys in it, especially for the Cubs. Well, doesn't it say at what point the 14th inning is when the game was suspended? So they got four innings in. So that yeah, you probably start seeing some oddities. Uh, how about boy? It'd be well, awesome. If exactly there was a 25 the, guys Cubs. played for the Cubs, but you know there were a whole bunch of guys who played in it in the resumption who weren't on the team in April. Yes, like uh, I bet you Matt Keogh pitched in the April portion, but not the July. Uh, let's see here. I think Spire was a midseason acquisition. I could be wrong. Maybe they, they heralded him in. I'm just looking at the box score. There's nobody that I think may have come in late. Dave Gumpert might have been late season. Frank DePino, future Mark Race nemesis. I think he was midseason. Maybe not. Because we're interesting, like, for the for the Pirates – um, well, it would stay on the game score, right? You get, if, if you, you go get, to the, you get Barry Bonds and um, Bobby Bonilla. I have no idea if Bonds and Bonilla started the '86 season in Pittsburgh, but they certainly were there I, by by August. And they both I came they in. They both came in late. They didn't start the game. They both came. Oh, in here the it game is. Later. Check it out. If you go to the uh, inning by inning, bottom of the 14th, all of a sudden. Barry Bonds replaces Sid Bream first base yeah. pitching. And so Danny these were guys Ford. that Bonilla some... replaces Mike Brown playing first base. Washington replaces Pat Clements. I remember Pat Clements uh, playing shortstop. A uh, Bill Allman. There's a Bill Allman yeah. name check. How about that's a first? Uh, I want to say former uh, first pick in the draft and a White Sox uh, batting champion contender. Uh, R.J. Reynolds, uh, former Dodger, came up with Franklin Stubbs, and then. Of course, the Cubs don't seem to make any changes in the top of the 15th. Oh, they, they did in the top of the 14th. All that Davey Lopes, but he was on the team all year. Chris Spire comes. I don't know. Cubs, Cubs sadly, may not have actually changed much at all, but you're right. 
you look at this is actually sort of the uh, the early um, seeds of the pirates mini dynasty in which Barry Bonds would fall on his face in three consecutive. Yeah, because like the oddity with this would be if and it's happened where a player has gotten a hit in a resumed game and his first career hit. And so they say he made his debut on like August 4th. He got his first hit on April 9th. You know, we didn't talk because it counts for the day the game. Everything counts as though the game, the whole game was played on the day it started. You know, we didn't talk about time machine for the guys hit. Right. You know, we didn't talk about last week. when We talked about 1982 because this totally happened. I was watching the game with first year club announcer, Harry Carey, in which Matt Joel Youngblood hit a double off the wall. And I'm watching the game, and Harry says, "Oh, we've been informed. Chuck, uh, uh, Joel Youngblood is out of the game." Or Ch- I think Chuck Swirsky got the mention. No, Chuck Swirsky broke in later. Uh, young Chuck Swirsky, by the way. Uh, long. This is 1982, where all right, Youngblood inexplicably comes out of the game after hitting a double off the wall, and then uh, Chuck Swirsky informs us that Joel Youngblood has been traded uh, to the Expos. Uh, and young, young blood left Wrigley field, got a cab, went to O'Hare, flew to, uh, uh Philadelphia, uh, arrived in uh veteran stadiums clubhouse, put on a uniform and then proceeded to get a hit in a second city, uh, in the same night. And I want to say both hits were off hall of famers. I want to say Fergie Jenkins was the cub pitcher earlier in the day. And Steve Carlton mm-hmm. was in fact the Philly pitcher later at night. Sorry to cram that in there, but, you know, kind of came up with the suspended game nonsense. Uh, we failed to mention it with 82, but that did happen. And, uh, traded and it did involve the Cubs. The Expo should have traded him to, like, the Giants and sent him, try to see if they could get him out west in time. Well, he was a Giant by 84. I know. Trade him out there and then see if he can get three kids for three teams. Yeah. Play. Yeah. Well, with the new, the morning games on Peacock coming up, <laughs> you, you'll be able that. to do that. You'll be able to, like, um, you know, play Fuck in three sake. or four games in the same day. This is the breakfast that Wimbledon. Cheerios yeah. leave it, at Wrigley Field. Leave it to Dave Brown to be a buzzkill because I'm a huge fan of the 10:30 games. It's not even early enough. Start them earlier. I don't care. And he's like, "What about you know the people who have to work at the games?" Oh come on, yeah. And then it was even like an afterthought. He was like, "Oh yeah, the players too." <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's not. I mean, the so the Cubs every year will play Sunday games in Cincinnati. At 11. Right. That, well, that's all we start those Sunday games at noon Eastern. So that's the, it's, it's a half hour earlier. Big deal. In in the old days of sports writing or beat reporting, wouldn't that give you more of a cushion for a deadline anyway? In the yeah. old days. I know. Honestly, well, it's, it's, if, especially if it's getaway day, the players won't care. They just want to get the fuck out of there. Right. Game will be over by, you know, one thirty. Yes. And you're on to the next city. Oh, Poor uh, Len Casper will be. I don't, it's too bad he doesn't have a job. But if he did, he remember he was always fascinated by. He'd be like, "Well, the Cubs, the Cubs have a game uh, in uh, Colorado uh, tomorrow, and uh, no, the Cubs are coming home to play the Rockies. The Rockies are the day off. The Rockies are already in Chicago. It's like, oh no, yeah. they beat us there. Holy shit! Now we're screwed. Right, it's like, right. It's a thing called air travel, Len. They invented it quite a while ago. Um, Sometimes that be the will beat you to your house. That's what's happened. It's going to be okay. Would that be one of those things where, like, like Steve Stone was always so quick to talk about the value of the eighth-place hitter getting on base with two outs in the night? Because you don't want the pitcher to lead off the next inning. He pounded that shit home. 
Or Chip uh, Carey. What was Chip Carey's obsession? Anytime. Oh, fuck. Never mind. I probably shouldn't have even brought it up. I don't want to get into the, the conversation. Yeah, no, we're, you were years away from. There was we're, a whole we're... thing. Um, they, when, you know, back in the old days when the uh, National League didn't, it didn't have a DH, you know, last year. Um, there was always this thing about, well, it's so much tougher to pitch in the American League. Because because in, in the in the National League the pitcher bats and then you've got the eighth place hitter so it's like having to it's like you don't have an eighth place hitter in the American League I'm pretty sure you do I'm pretty sure it's the right. exact same goddamn guys Probably it's one stop. guy it don't make this two guys it's one guy that's a dumb argument and then o- almost every team has somebody on their lineup who can't hit even with the DH there's always a guy it's like oh right the Cubs have the Cubs the Cubs have more than one. Um, but they they insist on playing Jason Hayward. See, it's like having the pitcher still, except they bat him like fifth. So, I never understood that. Outfielders in nineteen eighty and in nineteen eighty six, I it did pop into my head. I think I saw it earlier, but I would have remembered that. I don't know if Bob Dernier was getting a little creaky or what, but Dallas Green provided a reinforcement with a player that I was kind of excited about because I'd had a few of his baseball cards. He seemed like a sweet hitter, Jerry Mumphrey, yeah. uh, to, to help sort of share the load in center field. Good old number 22, 33-year-old Jerry Mumphrey. Uh, that was kind of a problem. I think, wish we'd an had overall him, player. I but we had him five years ago. Um, <laughs> right, he was a good too, product. I think Jerry was too bad. for the. He played 86 and 87, I think. Just two, huh? Um. Yeah, this Jerry Mumphrey for the '86 Cubs. He 309 at bats in 111 games. He hit 304, 355 on base. He only slugged 401. Only. Um. Leadoff hitter and center fielder is batting uh, OPS 756 and five homers. Seems pretty good. Switch hitter. Yeah, I felt bad almost. I was cheating on Bobby. Bobby was our guy. He was part of the Daily Double, 84. But I do kind of remember feeling, yeah, maybe oh, Mumphrey. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry played three years for the Cubs. So he went through 88. Yep. He didn't play very much in the I, think, I believe he got released in 88. He was bad. Yeah. Uh, he was player. even better in 87. 333, 400, 534. Woo-hoo. 534 slugging in a what on base? Uh, 400. Wow. He had in, a nine. Wait, he had 309 at bats again. He had 309 at bats in 86 and 87. Wow. Right on that. He had a, he knew his number. Anthony Rizzo. Or Stan Musial. He had 13 overs and 44 RBIs in 87. Wow. Really good player. 80. So he played all three outfield it, spots. Well, I think by 87, he, he was hurt. holding. Yeah. Well, he retired I think he, at 35. I guess maybe you guys was, just did that back then. He was kind of holding up. Or maybe someone else, but. I, I think Dernier, because Dernier is pretty injury prone. I don't know. Bobby, in 84, he was there all year. But I think, I, I kind of feel like, yeah, Dernier was the opening day center fielder three years in a row, possibly four. Uh, we can explore 87 when we get there. And if it is four, we, we know that's the most that any of us have ever seen what uh, in future, succession. What future World Series hero did the Cubs trade to get Jerry Mumphrey? Was he traded from the Padres? He was traded from by from the Astros, and this guy was a World Series oh, hero for Bill, yet Bill, Billy Hatcher. Team. Billy Hatcher. Billy Hatcher. Yep. I remember I was mad. I now I know this for a fact because I wrote in uh, Billy Hatcher as uh, an All Star. Yeah. In, in when, 1986. I I remember uh, when Dernier first got hurt in '85. We'll revisit this in '85. I'm just going to plow ahead with it now. Dernier got hurt right in the midst of that 13 game losing streak. Uh, they were like, oh, but at this point they. 
he froze. All right, so while he's frozen, I'm going to run down the uh, four. And the opening and the center fielder in that game was not Bob Dernier, but a young like 20 year old Darren Jackson. Uh, mm. And then he sucked because he was raw and not ready. And then whatever. And then Billy Hatcher came up and he always showed some flashes. I remember was, my sister was like really hated Darren Jackson because she saw that he was basically standing in the way of Billy. Is that why she hated him? That's mean. yes, that that's nice. that. And the fact that yeah. he was standing in the way of Billy Hatcher, who showed some flashes with the Cubs, and uh, but Dallas, Dallas actually—I fl- don't know if Dallas would have drafted Billy Hatcher, but uh, that's kind of a rare instance of him dealing uh, his own. You know, uh, uh, whether it's his own or Bob Kennedy produced, drafted it, or even Herman Franks for that one brief stint as a GM. Uh, no, uh, Billy Hatcher predated Dallas. He was a well, sixth-round pick 80? in 1981. So Bob Kennedy, his last draft, unless it was Herman Franks. Herman Franks came in there for a while, and there was all that disarray amidst the uh, owner. Uh, and the I guess sale. I wrote Billy Hatcher in as an all-star in 85 because he didn't actually play for the 86 Cubs. He got traded out of the minors. So we got – so he, wow, only 85. Yeah, so he came up – so Darren Jackson came up. Billy sucked. Hatcher was Billy an Hatcher Cup. came up and was good. He came up in September of 84? Yeah, played eight games. Holy shit. And Henry Cotto was like, bro, you ain't going to be on the playoff roster. I am. And so if people are like, what do you mean Billy Hatcher was a World Series MVP? How about this? How about this stat line? In the 1990 Cincinnati Reds sweep of the Oakland A's, Billy Hatcher hit 750 with an 800 <laughs> on base, a 1250 slug. He played in all four, four games. games. He started all four games. He um, killed him. Killed him. Love he, it. He was nine for twelve. He scored six runs, four doubles, a triple, two RBIs. Shoved it up the. Base, uh, and he was not the World Series MVP, but clearly he should have been the World Series. MVP. Holy shit! Who was Jose Rio? Jose Rio, I believe. So he shoved it up the hiney of that whole arrogant Canseco, McGuire, Larusa, Dave Stewart, even Eckersley. Although Eckersley. Likeable. Yeah, World Series MVP Jose Rijo. Why did he start twice? He must obviously. He must have. It was a four-game sweep. They Blue stunned the world. Him back on. He did. Oh, he wasn't too bad. Two and zero. Oh, 59 ERA. Gave up nine hits in fifteen innings. Struck out fourteen. Wow. In the World Series. Of course, it's crazy because that was like Jose Rijo. Even though he was only, he was twenty-five. It was the seventh big league season. <laughs> yeah, he was a young call with the Yankees. <laughs> the Yankees traded like eighty-four. Right away. Then they immediately traded him to the A's, ironically, who he would then beat in the World Series. Oh, okay. So here's he the trade. Directly. He got traded. Um, it was a big trade, December fifth, nineteen eighty-four. Jose Rio, Tim Burtzis, Jay Howell, Stan Javier, and Eric Plunk for Burt Bradley. Ricky Henderson and Cash. I know all those names. We know all those names. That's crazy. So that was a lot clearly of times, a George Steinbrenner trade. Right. You rattle off a lot of those trades, and I don't know half the fucking guys that you talk about. I knew Jay Howell was one of that that, that coterie of, uh, uh, like, un, undistinguished Cub pitchers in the early 80s that went on to become a distinguished closer. Yep. Stan Javier, of course, been around for a while. That's a a lot going on in that. Eric trade. Plunk, one of one of yeah, uh, Pat Hughes, one of Pat Hughes' favorites, loves a pitcher named Plunk. Yes, 
Um, just like I got all excited for Pat when I found out that Anthony Bass is now pitching for the Marlins. I was like, I immediately thought of Pat. I'm like, oh, he's going to love that. It's, it's Why? Be the greatest thing ever. Anthony Bass pitching for the Marlins. Oh, yeah, that's right. Pat that's loves his Pat's puns. kind of stuff. He loves it. No, I know. I he know. was I'm traded trying to... then three years later from the A's to the Reds again with Tim Burtzis because they're, they're a match set. I remember Tim Burtzis, too. For Dave Parker. Oh, the Cobra. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, because of the uh, the lower standards that Harold Baines' enshrinement in the Hall of Famer should end, would be an obvious Hall of Famer. Do you feel worse now about constantly ripping Harold Baines knowing that he had a kidney and heart transplant? No, I didn't know that until like two seconds Nobody ago. Nobody did. Nobody knew until opening day. You think Jerry would work this the This emotional, presses. like he threw the, that, threw the first pitch. Like, no, feet. I didn't know. Everybody's like, oh, look at that. And like, oh, he, well, what you didn't know was like, Right. Go, he had a, right. a heart Was that like when Walter Payton was like dying and Marchie and Greco made fun of him without knowing that he was fucking dying? Maybe Harold's dying. Uh, I don't feel worse. I'm happy for him that he's in the Hall of Fame. That's good for him. He's got a new heart and a kidney. He's kicking ass. He's fine. Oh, yeah. What am I talking? Yeah, he's going to be around forever. Yeah. He's going to lord that over Dave another, Parker. Another 100,000 miles on him now. He's good to go. Fucking Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame. Dave Parker's not. Okay. Now, I wanted to be. If you wanted to talk about a guy who, um, who was in some big trades. That would be Jerry Mumphrey. You're going to know these guys too. Is he, is he the Roberto Kelly of the 1980s? I don't know, but he got tra- he was drafted by the Cardinals in the fourth round in 71. In 79, he got traded by the Cardinals with John Denny. Remember John Denny? Oh, yeah, future, uh, future Cy Young Award winner or the ERA champion. To the Indians, and they were the Indians then. They weren't the Guardians for Bobby Bonds. Wow. Uh, then a year later, he gets traded by the Indians to the Padres for Bob Ochinko. I remember Bob Wachinko. And Jim Wilhelm, whoever that is. He used to snort a giggle at his name. He got traded by the Padres with John Pacella, who I don't know who that is, to the Yankees uh, for... Is that P-A-C-E-L-L-A? Yes. I think he's a former Met, and on his baseball card, he was known for uh, uh, his baseball card would flip off every time he went into a windup. I believe, pretty sure that's John Pacella. Sorry to put the brakes on this uh, Jerry Mumphrey, like Walter Mitty uh, life, but John Pacella actually has a little bit of a... Iconic. If, that, if that's the guy I'm thinking of, if not, then I totally apologize. So Jerry and John got traded to the to the Yankees for Rupert Jones, Joe Lefevre, not Jim, not his brother Jim, Joe Lefevre. Oh, I believe it was, was that the guy that played for the Phillies? Yeah, he, he pronounced it Lefay. Oh. Joe Lefay. Do you remember Joe Lefay? They're related, no. right? Nope. They're not. How did that fucked up a name? I always thought they were related. I remember because I didn't know who Jim Lefevre was, future Cub manager. I I Jim Lefevre was, was a guy. There was a. Jim Lefevre was a Dodger manager in the, in the 70s. I had no idea how to read that name. I'm like 13 years old when Joe Lefay comes up to like educate us. It's, apparently, it's pronounced Lefay. L-E-F-E-V-E-R-E. I guarantee you I'm not wrong about this. R-E. It's Lefevre, like future Cub manager and former Dodger. Yeah, uh, exactly Jim Lefevre. I always thought they were. I thought they were at least cousins, but according to baseball reference, they're not related. Uh, so Rupert Jones, Joe Lefay, Tim Lawler, and Chris Welsh, who is a longtime Reds announcer. Yeah, that's a W-E-L-S-H, like to like renege on a bet, right? Yeah, Welsh. it's not it's not like Bob Welch, like no, W-E-L-C-H, it's, it's S-H. Like he's from Wales. Right, or he likes to cheat on bets. But, you know, you like him, so fine, you can you can defend him. I don't know that I like him. I know, well, the thing he's most famous for right. is that he, like, knows every rule. So whenever anything crazy happens. Oh, wow, um, I love guys like that. Even if you're even so, I think I honestly think Boog did it last year where the Cubs were playing somebody, not even the Reds, 
and something weird happened and he texted Chris Welsh and asked him and Welsh texted back with the answer as to why the rule is the way it is. So that's a nice little resource to have. That's pretty sweet. I believe he also was in the booth when uh, Tom Brenneman uh, lit his uh, career on fire. Um, let's see. So then, um, Jerry gets traded by the Yankees to the Astros for Omar Moreno. Another world series champion leadoff hitter, the 79 pirates along with Dave Parker. So, so far our guy has been traded for two 79 pirates. And then his final trade, he was traded by the Astros to the Cubs for Steve Engel and Billy Hatcher. Steve Engel. Wait, Steve Engel was traded for Jerry Mumphrey to get Jerry Mumphrey I'm Steve sorry. Engel and Billy Hatcher for Jerry Mumphrey. Yeah, Steve Engel was, along with Jay Baller, one of those uh, undistinguished pitchers in 85 that were forced to pitch when everybody got hurt. Oh, so yeah. he sucked. That's all I remember is that he sucked and it wasn't his fault. They threw him in to get the great um, Before too much time slips away, it occurred to me there are a couple of things that have I've circled back to in my head that we have to get out there. I mentioned it in the beginning. Jim Fry whacked on Friday the 13th. However, uh, there's a What do you think, guys? Should we hang in? Wait, think he'll unfreeze? Last time I talked, he unfroze. This happens like four times a podcast. You know, we're gonna play again. We're gonna play if I can guess his story, the one he was, the one he's about, the one he thinks he's telling right now, before he realizes that his uh, internet froze and he's got to dial back in. Um, he's either gonna talk about how John Vukovic got to be the interim manager. And there were a lot of people who thought he should get to be a manager someday, and it wasn't fair that he never got to. And I think he was an interim for the Cubs and the Phillies and never got, like, a full-time job. He's one-on-one for the Cubs that year. Or he's going to tell a story about how Dallas goes out and gets Gene Michael from the Yankees, Stick, who would later be famous as the um, um, as a general manager that helped build the um, the dynasty before Brian Cashman um, took it over. And Gene Michael comes over to manage the Cubs, and uh, even like th- early in the early in his tenure, he's like, oh, "I'm an American League guy. I haven't really learned all the other players yet, but I'm going to figure it out." He was still saying that shit like his third month on the job. Um, the Cubs went 23 and 33 under Fry, under Fry. They went one and one under Vuk, and they went 46 and 56 under Gene Michael. So they were shitty, no matter who uh, was the manager. I'm back. Sorry. Okay. Now, tell your tell the story because what I just did was I just I just posited to the listeners what story you were about to tell when you froze. Oh, let's play let's play a game, and I'm not going to ask. I'm only going to say that heading into the '86 season, in his infinite wisdom, Jerry Reinsdorf, now pretty much the controlling partner of the White Sox, um, pushed out Roland Heeman and and brought in Hawk Harrelson, one Ken Hawk Harrelson, to run his baseball team. Brought him down from the broadcast booth. Uh, Harrelson had come in with a whole new regime in '82, just like Harry Carey came in with Dallas Green. But the Sox hired Early Win and Don Drysdale and Hawk Harrelson, and they Everything was different. They went to pay cable there. Everything was different with the Sox. They won a division in 83. Things are happening. Hawks all full of themselves. Now he gets the job. 
uh, first thing that I remember, this was pointed out in a Sports Illustrated scorecard or, or somebody wrote in a letter that in the promotional materials going into the 86 season where there's a huge caricature of Hawk and his big-ass nose lording over the old Comiskey Park, that home plate was upside down. Hmm. And this was like uh, this was the artwork that was on those pocket schedules uh, that were distributed everywhere, liquor stores and 7-Elevens. Uh, another great idea that Hawk Harrelson had coming into the season was – to um, and this is a callback to last week of the '82 draft first-round pick Ron Karkovice, who was drafted by Roland Heyman under the uh, first year of the Reinsdorf Eddie Einhorn regime. Uh, Hawk Harrelson just had to have that that catcher up and uh, very much uh, uh, brusquely pushed aging veteran and future Hall of Fame catcher Carlton Fisk to left field, which was a big circus of a media story in Chicago back then. It was all over the, you know, such as it could be compared to now, all over the newspapers. Um, and, you know, so that was just great. But, you know, still, what could go wrong? You've got future Hall of Fame manager Tony Larusa in the dugout, three years removed from a surprise championship. We're putting it together. We've got new GM. Hawk's going to make it work. He's going to put a stamp on it. A week after Friday – 13th, F-R-E-Y-D-A-Y, I want to say literally a week, uh, when Jim Fry was relieved of his duties by Dallas Green, it seemed somewhat impulsively, almost to you know not lose too much of the spotlight, Sox general manager Hawk Harrelson proceeded to whack Tony La Russa and relieve him of his duties as manager, which, you know, I know Hawk's self-deprecating about it now and you know, references it and, you know, he can laugh at himself, but it's not going to stop me from pointing and laughing at what a fucking shit show the Sox were circa 1986. I want to say also, uh, uh, apropos of nothing, that the Sox at that point were uh, their home game, or a lot of their games, all right, the non-cable games that Jerry Reinsdorf forced people to, to pay to watch, uh, whatever they did not have on Sports Vision, which is what it was originally before it became Sports Channel and Fox Sports Chicago and Comcast, yada, yada, yada. Uh, non-cable games are on Channel 32, UHF, Metro Media, Channel 32. And this could be wrong. Somebody like T.J. Brown could find this. There was like a lawsuit that Channel 32 sued the White Sox to get out of showing their games around this time. Hmm. So thus concludes the dumping on the, the White Sox 10-minute period. Okay, so I was way off. I didn't realize you were going to pivot and go White Sox. So the two, I gave the listeners two choices that I thought stories were going to tell. One was, because I thought we were just going to go right off Fry getting fired. One was the sentiment that uh, interim manager John Vukovic deserved a shot at managing the Cubs. Yep. There were a lot of people who thought that was going to happen. He ended up it's also a being an story. interim yep. in Philly. And oh, that's right. But he all he never got a full job, and then he got it, he had a brain tumor, right? I didn't even get into the brain. Yes, tumor. it died young. It's a tragic story. Let's just dive down that rabbit hole all weekend because it's very much a part of sort of Cubs lore. Is that John Vukovic was a sort of a a middling, probably had a World Series ring, might have been on the 1980 roster. He was a, a part of this this like weird menagerie of Vukovic's that were like all over. Major League Baseball in the late, uh, mostly in the Phillies organization, there was a George Vukovic outfielder. There's a Pete Vukovic who I believe came up with the Phillies, but he was a brewer in the 82 World Series that we referenced tonight. John Vukovic, not nearly as good as the other two, uh, just kind of a skinny, 
mustachioid uh, infielder, I think. Not much of a career, but it uh, must have been somewhat of a smart or at least a heady guy. Dallas Green took a liking to him. So in Dallas Green, as we talked in great detail last week, when he comes over in 82 from Philadelphia and imports about 20% of the Philadelphia organization, brings, uh, uh, brings over John Vukovic, who was probably still a too young to have his own team, but was clearly kind of the uh, the protege underneath Lee Ilya, who was even in 1982 was you know getting up there, or maybe Lee just looked old, kind of like Burt Young. But in any event, uh, Vukovic was kind of the guy. But when uh, when Ilya got fired at the end of his second season, I, I think Green just sort of reasoned Vukovic wasn't ready, especially probably a good move because he had all these veterans that he was in the short term, like you said, was patching together a, a winner in the short term while they built this long term farm system, which I think the architecture was for Vukovic to be the guy and. In 86, when Fry just, you know, made too many left turns as a manager and Green, you know, kind of felt that he had the currency to fire his second manager in only his fifth season, uh, whacked Fry and then went out and then went outside of the organization for Gene Michael. I'm thinking about it right now, Andy, as we're talking about it in retrospect, it seems like a tragic flaw on Green's part. It might've all turned to shit. It might not have mattered, uh, but it kind of feels like Vukovic would have been primed to take that team over then because uh, of the young players that were on the horizon. But uh, Green didn't do that. He didn't hire Vukovic. Seemed he would have been ready. It was Vukovic's fifth year in the organization. Um, The story comes to a close after the 87 season when Green was finally supposedly prepared to hire Vukovic. I think the truth's a little bit unclear. It didn't happen then. And then poor old John Vukovic never got his chance. You referenced that the same fucking like blue ball, the you know, the 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 kick to the midsection happened again in Philadelphia and didn't work and Vuk didn't get a team for real. And then he died young of cancer. It's all I feel sad when I think about John Vukovic. Right. So the other story I thought you were going to going to tell was uh, Gene Michael famously. So the Cubs hire him and early on in his tenure after a game, he's like, well, you know, I'm still learning, still learning the National League. You know, I, I, I don't really. Long, Gene Michael, long time Yankee player, yeah. Yankee manager. One of the guys with Billy Martin that was on the George Steinbrenner carousel. Yeah. And then like by the end of the season, he was still, I'm still learning the league. It's like, yeah, you don't give a shit. He, <laughs> he was up, milking it. He ended up uh, the general manager of the Yankees. And he was after one the, this one of the guys who helped put together the uh, their dynasty. He was. That's right. He was in the background in the nineties, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, he went back to the Yankees and worked for George forever. And yeah, like he was one of these guys with like like Clyde King and Bob Lemon and Billy Martin that would like rotate in it. Like Steinbrenner would just impulsively fire one, bring back Michael and Martin. I think were fired and hired the most, but he, you know, they put up with it. But Green pulled him out. It it really is in retrospect a, a, a dubious, a questionable thing. I, I feel the right to question Dallas Green's decision here. It didn't really make a lot of sense. The veterans were on their way out the door. I don't know what you needed Gene Michael for, uh, and things didn't improve. But he was brought back for eighty. This was not a Joe, this was not a Charlie Fox Frank well Frank Luchesi didn't happen it would happen next year after Michael but it was not a interim situation he Fry was fired and then they hired a guy and then inked him for like a year and a half and it was uh, you know the Gene Michael era I mean shit if you blink it forget it there's not that much memorable about it, it seems so what kind of crazy is you mentioned that the White Sox fired Tony like a week later. I think so. It felt like a week later. So the 86 Cubs had 
uh, Jim Fry went 23 and 33. Then Vukovic was one and one. Then Gene Michael went 46 and 56. And okay. the White Sox had Tony went 26 and 38. Doug Rader went one and one. And Jim Fergosi went 45 and 51. So they Wow. Very similar had seasons. The same season, just on opposite sides of town. Interesting. Yeah, the Sox were 72 and 90, and the Cubs were. Are, uh, were seventy and ninety. Didn't even bother. I'm sure they'd have won. Think, those, I'm sure they'd have won those two games. They didn't bother to make up. I think. I think prospects probably weren't really good for either team. The Cubs still didn't have lights. Dallas hadn't gotten his way there. Like I said, I mentioned this law. The Sox were laughably off the radar. If you had cable and you'd pay extra for Sports Vision, so if you're a fan of them or the Bulls or the Hawks, you could watch them. Um, but they were also four years from threatening to like be gone. Uh, there was not a lot of interest. I think uh, they were three years removed from a, their first postseason appearance in 24 years, but they didn't have a lot of prospects. I think Bobby Thigpen may have come up in 86, but uh, it, it actually took like Larry Hyde. Things were it started to turn for the Sox after the season, but I want to say 86 was definitely a Sox franchise nadir in some respects, especially in retrospect when you see they got rid of La Russa, but they, they, they actually kind of went on a run after this where the Cubs would continue to go in stops and starts for, you know, in perpetuity, it felt like. Uh, the Cubs would draw 1.8 million fans in 86, and the White Sox 1.4 million fans. Not bad. Both teams still a little bit maybe in the glow of winning us, you know, going to the playoffs in the previous few seasons. When did Jerry start his flirtation with Tampa? Right around that time, around, right? around then, it really was. I think 86 was really, I think Reinsdorf was probably checked out. I guarantee you, if you think about it, that's probably the point where Reinsdorf was mentally the most checked out on the White Sox. It was funny because I was watching the Giants opener and um, they were showing. In fact, show- you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt before you get to this. It almost feels like Major League because Hawk, Hawk is such a fucking idiot cornpone moron that Reinsdorf may have been trying to sabotage. It just occurred to me that it's the plot of Major League. That Reinsdorf may have, in fact, been trying to sabotage the Sox in 86. So. Now I was just going to say, I was watching the, the Giants, and they were showing these old guys that I don't know who the hell they are, and they're like, oh, that's this guy, and that's this guy. And then they were saying, he's one of the uh, – one of the original owners in 93, they kept drawing this like line in the sand at 93. And I was trying to figure for out which franchise for the giants. And I realized that was when Peter McGowan was going to move them to Tampa. They were the next team. And this group of San Francisco, like investors bought the giants and saved them. And then is that started all the work of getting the nice pack pa- built pack bell, pack bell yeah, which it- is now Oracle. I think. Well, some phone company, yeah. <laughs> it's Oracle now. Sorry. It's not even a phone company. Those don't exist. But I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And I realized, oh, that's right. That was the next team in line with the, we'll pretend we're moving to Tampa so we can get a stadium. Yes. Because that's exactly what the, the Sox did, the whole thing where the right. Jim Thompson, they turned, so, the, they turned the clock back at the state house. That's right. No, that right. It's very well documented. Um, that So it, it they built that stadium in which the Rays currently play for those teams. Like they, like, yeah, they build it to attract of, a baseball team. That awful like, piece of shit. Are, they, are, are there are there other instances of a city actually going ahead and building a stadium before like the I's are dotted and T's are crossed? Is that it seems unusual? But how unusual is that? And like, what a fucking outrage that would be for any you know any anybody. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on politically or how you feel about taxes, but like. You know, and I don't even know how much of that would have been uh, publicly funded to begin with. I mean, yeah, some asshole wanted to... Probably not. Tampa was unique in that they didn't have any... So some they, rich asshole just They didn't it. have a major... 
Oh, it was Vince Naimoli, right? Wasn't that the guy that built the, yeah, I the think Gold you're right. Coast Dome or whatever it was, and then it became Tropicana Field or whatever? I mean, they built yeah. it with the idea that before they could get a baseball team, they could have, like, big events in it. It wouldn't be empty because it was a dome. So it's multi- that's why it's a dome in Florida. But most teams that are trying to attract a baseball team have at least another – they have like a football team, like in like in Miami, and they didn't well, need to go. They didn't need to build the stadium right away because they could just retrofit Joe Robbie for a few years, and then right. But Tampa had a football team, but they when did they, oh, so true. they they had Tampa Stadium, but then they built the uh, whatever the right. Yeah, they built. They they could have they could have maybe forgot, worked. Forgot on about that. the Bucks in the nineties. Right, it's not a one. It's not a one sport town, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a fucking eyesore. I know that. I've never been inside of it. I've driven by it. Yeah, it would be uh, like um, you could see a, a, a city like Nashville. Be like, fuck it. We're just gonna we'll build the stadium, and then we're gonna guarantee it. We'll get a team. The problem with it is, of course, you don't want to you don't want to do that anymore because the owner wants they want they, they want to own the stadium. Yes, they want to own the stadium, and they want to they want their fingers in it. They don't want a pre built stadium. They right. want to do what they want to do with it. Well, they can build it themselves, is what I would say. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I I would have to do a little more research. I don't know what the uh, politics were about that stadium. I just know it got built and it was fucking empty. Sixty minutes did a piece on it in the late ninety or midnight before the the Rays finally solved that problem by moving into that unholy creation. Yeah, it's um, and they've been trying. It's to get, weird. It's just they've been trying to get out of it ever since. But yeah, I think it was it was the inertia coming from Chicago with a franchise that seemed to be really slumming along that sort of put that in motion. And uh, apparently, it's built on the wrong side of the bay, and so everybody has to go across the bridge to get there. Yep. And, it, and it makes traffic, and that bridge can be a pain in the ass. Makes traffic a nightmare, and you know they just got it all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So in spite of Hawk Harrelson's best efforts, the Sox would not move um, to Florida. And, uh, you know, despite everything else, the Cubs, you know, like I said, it, it's weird to think that they're two years removed from a division made up by, by three years removed in the future from another division championship comprised of all these players that weren't quite there yet, although some were. Yeah, uh, there's not and, a lot. It's funny. There's not a lot of crossover between the 84 Cubs and 89 Cubs. There's three guys. They all begin with the letter S. Sanderson, Sandberg, and Sutcliffe. Yeah. Only three that round both. And they're six years apart, but that still seems pretty low. I, I always feel that Just Dallas sure there Green... wasn't any like young talent other than Sandberg on the 84 right. Cubs. Well, Joe Carter, which who was flipped. <laughs> yeah, he was gone before they got. They wouldn't. Well, have I mean, been, right. They wouldn't have young been talent. the 84. They wouldn't have Sandberg been the 84 was, Cubs yeah. without. Sandberg was the only young talent on on the 84 Cubs. I mean, like after him, it's like Jody and Moreland. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, it's like a it's like a, a movie oh, of all no. these characters Dave, and Dave Owen, don't forget Dave and Owen. young Dave Owen. Yes, certainly not old Tom Verizer, who was also a backup shortstop in '84. So here's I got a question for you: if if the White Sox had left, would Chicago have two baseball teams today? Yeah, because somebody'd move in with lights if they left by '87. But, but wheels were in motion. Um, otherwise, everything else being equal. Would the Cubs still be in Wrigley? And would I don't, I don't think there'd be another team. I think South Side. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Sox are a South Side team. You'd have to convince somebody that that's worth investing in, and it's obviously fucking like population-wise, more than fifty percent of the residents of Chicago. But 
I don't know. I don't remember Mayor I'm, Daly always threatened if the Bears left the city limits, he was going to get an AFC team. Uh, I know. <laughs> so, but, you know, oh, sure you are. That seems like a good idea. Of course, yeah, 1986 is that weird, uh, I guess, 13-year period in the 50-year period that wasn't in which Chicago wasn't ruled by a daily. So there, you don't, yeah, you know, no, yeah. Like, so yeah, Jim Thompson, who was the guy that kind of stuck his neck out to keep the socks and he was the governor uh, and Harold Washington was still the mayor in 86, but he would die in 87. I mean, there's a lot kind of going on in Chicago at this time too, but um, yeah, I, I honestly, I feel like the socks were, were teetering and the Cubs weren't really in that much better shape. Like I said, they, they didn't close the deal on lights. Yeah, they're two years removed from a nice championship. That was still an old ballpark. And I think, and I do feel that, in my own view, that Dallas Green almost kind of paid the price for having too much success too soon when he just fucking decided, let's build a winner. Yeah, I've got an old. It wasn't really about the money, but it was like, I, I can pretty much do whatever I want, whatever, change the culture, wins the division kind of surprisingly long before his, you know, his ingredients have been baked and his farm system is ready and the 86, they weren't ready, but I kind of feel like the expectations were getting big because of 84 and that some morons at the tribute company, you know, kind of conveniently would use it as an excuse when in 87, they were actually a better team in 87. Amazingly enough, the 86 Cubs, he was 500 when they fired him. The 86 Cubs did not finish in last place. The 87 Cubs did, but the 87 Cubs were a better team than the 86 Cubs. They were, and there was obvious promise on the, by then these young guys that we're talking about in 86 that are getting their cup of coffee, Dave Martinez is Jamie Moyer, Damon. I don't know if you said Barry Hill was on the 86 Cubs, but Maddox, uh, he wasn't, but uh, some of these guys that had peeped up 87 started really showing some stuff. Then you could get excited. Dunstan, you know, had turned a corner by 87, but I kind of feel like green had burned some bridges, pissed off enough, you know, people who already had sticks up their asses at Tribune. Uh, and he lost some currency because they did lose for a while. 86 was a bad season. That was probably used against them, even though it was like, shit, if you could exercise some patience, hold out here, let me, you know, just let me, I know what I'm doing here. It didn't happen. It's a whole alternate yeah. history. You can go on and on about it. But to me, it's it's a very There, there have been plenty of, plenty of rebuilding projects that have gotten derailed by uh, premature success. And the plan goes out the window. You're gonna, you're, I think you're going to see it this year with the 2022 Cubs. I mean, you know, they're clearly the best team in the National League, even though they're not really not supposed to be yet. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. And, I you know, I, I can see Jet Brennan making Davis. all kinds of short-sighted deals to win the World right. Series this year, and that's just going <laughs> to – it's really going to ruin things. Brennan Davis for Austin Slater. Let's go. Who says no? Now, one of the, uh, one of the things about those uh, mid – uh, mid eighties Cubs teams that was really good was um, there was, there was a real spirit of uh, collegiality and uh, even like, even like the wife of one of the players, she kept an eye out for the young guys coming up. Right. Especially and the ones Tasha from would take them, Right. Right. If you had a nice tan, uh, she with. would take you under, under your, under her wing or corn cops, whatever it was. It's like a sort of unofficial ambassador type of a thing. It was all kind of tied into. Show you, uh, show you around town. Show you all the hot spots. You know, we've hardly talked about Rhino. I mean, we don't, you know, we we will because cover him. We're going to get through We're gonna get through 30 of these, 32 of these. Well, and talk right, about Hall a, of Fame second baseman Ryan right. Sandberg. For like, I think the most I right. talked about him was bitching about the fact that he big-timed his way back onto the team after 
the uh, it was after last the, after, was the 90, after the ninety five yeah. Cubs no, put together a win streak that he just had no to be right at. no but but we talked about him last last week is the third I mean obviously he's got a you know a fifteen year career he gets he, I'm not worried that we're going to run out of Ryan Sandberg content it's just I mean, funny the eighty six he was like as a player you know he was. Um, you know, kind of really kind of like maintaining that level that he had rocketed to in 84. Yeah. I was looking at, he actually didn't have a very good year. It wasn't he bad. Didn't. Okay. Okay. Uh, he hit, he hit 284, which seems good, but he threw only, only a 330 on base, 411 slug. He hit 14 homers and 76 RBIs. He did steal 34 Mark, bases. And obviously, I mean, he probably went the whole season without an error. <laughs> so that probably right. helped. Well, and he stole like 50 some out of the year before. Yeah, but not not a great season. Yeah, could have been. Eighty six was his um, his third fifth year. Glove. He did not win the Silver yeah. Slugger that year. There was a gap there. He won it in eighty four and five, and then didn't win it again. Who the until... fuck won it in eighty six? Was it uh, Bill Dort or Juan Samuel? For Juan Samuel, it was probably that bastard Juan Samuel. Maybe uh, let's see, nineteen eighty six second baseman. They all seem to reside in the sun, in the East. It would have been Johnny Ray. Oh Jesus Christ! Really? No, I don't know. Let's see. No bullshit. Tommy Herr had one year had nine homers and a hundred RBIs, which is ridiculous. Steve Sachs. He had a hundred. Silver Slugger. Steve Fuck. Sachs got the L.A. Slugger. Media. L.A. Because they Let's knew. Let's see they... what Steve Sachs did in 1986. He... We used to say Sachs and Sandberg were both rookies in '82, and Sachs was slightly better, and he was the rookie of the year. I remember though going to games in '83, and the chant was you know, "Eat your heart out." Sachs. I'm I'm going to I'm going to allow it. I'm going to allow Steve Sachs's uh, silver slugger. He hit 332 with a 390 on base, a 441 slug. So he had a higher batting average, a higher on base percentage, much higher, All right, base, fine. higher slugging. He had six homers, 56 RBIs. He stole 40 bases. Oh, he, walked more, he walked more than he struck out. Okay. And it's the only one he ever won. That's so. fine. Let him have it. It was a down year for Rhino. And it, it was, was not a bad when he was still throwing the ball to first base on the fly. So they got right. that going for him. Well, his his yips were like before this. He had been cured by then, I think. His yips, I thought, were like 83, 84. Now, they started giving the Silver Slugger out in 1980. The award doesn't go back any farther than that. Who do you think won the first two at second base? Well, I want to know who, who won shortstop because Michael shortstop were just incredibly weak hitting for so long. But second base, National League, Silver Slugger. Was one of them Ken Oberkfell nope. before Tommy Herr replaced him and forced him to third base? He was a, a uh, former and then to be future Cub. Former Cub, future Cub, Manny Trio. Manny Trio. 86 Cub. Uh, Who's the other? Oh, he, he won, a, he won, he won two. Uh, Joe Morgan won it in 1982. That was a sentimental pick. Then John Morgan's... Gray. Then Sandberg, Sandberg, Sachs. Samuel, Sandberg, 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 Sandberg. Okay. Well, yeah, Sandberg really developed. He really took off like at beginning in uh, 90 or 80, 80, uh, 89. Really, short stops. This is good. First one ever was Gary Templeton. Yes. But then back-to-back back, back years, years of, and you know this was not uh, Davey Concepcion. There's no way. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. He won a silver slugger. Davey Concepcion has silver sluggers in his – Apartment in the Dominican. Then, uh, Dickie Thon before Mike Torres put one in his We eye. talked about Dickie Thon, right. Is that, he actually could have been a breakout uh, shortstop. Templeton won it again. Hubie Brooks won it twice. Ozzie Smith won short, it. Hubie once. Brooks was a shortstop? I thought he was third base. Well, he was playing shortstop in 85. All right. I'll allow it. 
choice. Barry Larkin wanted a whole bunch. Well, Larkin then would take over. Larkin sort of. The most common winners of the Silver Slugger, and I kind of like this, uh, in the, um, they break it down even outfield by position, which I, well, do they? Maybe they Left, center, right? No, they don't. It's outfield, left, outfield. So you're just going to get the three guys who won it the most. Um, The pitcher who won it the most times, Mike Hampton. Uh, Okay, sure. Well, it should have been Carlos, but whatever. The catcher who won it the most times was... Uh, Piazza? Mike Piazza. I would not have guessed this first baseman. It's these First current. baseman, when the, is a current first baseman? Current, and I guess I would have just figured it was Albert. Yeah, uh, but he, Albert played some third, some outfield but DH. it's not. It's a teammate of Albert's now. It's a Paul teammate of Albert's now. Has won is, more, has won more silver sluggers than any other first baseman. In history. Yes. Uh, oh, wow. Second baseman is Samberg. Excellent. Third baseman is Mike Schmidt, who basically won it the first. He won it the first six years. Yep. Okay. Barry Larkin Who's, is the most. He's the shortstop. The shortstop who won it the right. most. He's won it by far the most. And the outfielders, there's Bonds. a Cub. Yes. All Two Hall of Famers oh. and then a Cub. <laughs> Jack, oh, Jack Jones. Yes, Jack Sorry. Jones. Uh, the cub is Sammy, right? Sammy Sosa. Barry Bonds, and, Tony Gwynn, and Sammy Sosa. Oh, Gw- Gwynn got one. Okay. Actually, Goldschmidt is tied for the most. He's uh, Goldschmidt, Helton, and Pujols have all won it four times. So I don't know what. Oh, uh, Helton. What, I don't know why they rank him first. Um, okay. But yeah, Hampton won it five times. Glavin won it four. Did Maddox ever win it? I guess not. Maddox was too crafty. He's not yeah. bashing He's homers. He's winning all the gold gloves. 18 of them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Piazza won it 10 times. Pudge Rodriguez won it 7. Um, so they're mixing everybody in on this one because they have the National League here. And then because um, Pudge didn't win it 7 times in the National League. Um, I'm trying to look for other Cubs that are on here multiple times. Carlos Zambrano won it 3 times. Just three, though. Hampton's got five. Okay. Right. Paul Bacco won it once. A catcher. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, let's see. Paul has Bacco. a Cub ever won it at first base? Uh, my oh, guess would be Derek, Derek Lee, Lee, right? Yeah, it has to be Derek Lee. Because the thing is... Actually, I don't it, think he did. I think Pujols won it that year. Oh, shit. Yeah, like Pujols would have blocked him out. Yeah, Derek never won it. Fred McGriff won it three times, but I can't imagine. But now it's the Cubs. Cubs. No, 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 Let's no. see. Sandberg, seven. Any other Cubs? That's Sosa. Yes, well, Sosa is... So Sam uh, Bruce, DJ said, Oh, probably not with the Cubs. Third base. Aramis? Did he ever win it? I'd love to think so. Howard Johnson won it twice. Think he won it with the Cubs ever? We went over the 95 Cubs. No anyway. Cubs There's not a third. fucking chance, Howard Johnson. That's too bad. I feel bad for Aramis there. Probably deserved one. Short stops. Short stops is just I funny. I would Javi would have won it the year he hit the 100 and... Yeah, he was a second MVP. How the hell did he not? Javi did not win it. Who the hell won it? That's, that's, uh, that's 2019. Outfielders, Sosa, Dawson, George Bell. I don't think he won it for the Cubs. No. Joey Hamilton? Did, did Joey Hamilton win it when he, remember the Cubs? He was a rule five yes, the Cubs. for two days until Henry flipped him to uh, the Reds. Yeah, I do remember that. Moises Alou? Probably not as a Cub. Not with a Cub. Although. Does he Baker? Do those count? He won it twice. Really? Yep. Wow. 
Wow, Dusty he was, was old. Dusty was a good player. It didn't. I know he was, but like he was old by 1980. He said the Silver Slugger's first year was 1980. Yeah. Dusty was kind of at the end of the line. No wonder he liked veterans. He Carlos was Gonzalez. He won it as a Cub. Remember, he played for the Cubs for like. No, for I remember like three the diving. Weeks. Didn't he make a diving catch on the track? Or, yeah, he had a big home run too, and then he had to go. Yeah. Cargo. Uh, boy, that's it. Yeah. Well, there are a few, a few, a few former Cubs on there. Willie Wilson won it twice. Probably not with the Cubs. And there was an '86. No, there was not. There were no '86 Cubs uh, winning Silver Sluggers. Probably no Gold Gloves. No ten wins. Who would be the uh, the leader in home runs in '86? If I could hazard a guess, did we already cover this? No. Cubs. Oh, the Cubs, Cubs leader in home runs. Uh, the it would have leader in home runs. No, the Cubs. Oh. Uh... I just I just sort of brought it back to the '86 Cubs. My apologies. Two guys hit twenty-one. Two guys hit twenty-one homers, and so one of those would have. It wasn't Sandberg because you said he only hit 14. Yep. Leon Durham. Nope. Leon hit 20. Oh. Yeah, Leon, we didn't really mention my hero much. He, I think he was a little, snorting a little too much of the powder and it was, was decent, on his way out. He had the door. a decent year in 86. He was actually on the team until 88. Grace, like, replaced him in May. Uh, the 221 homers, say, did not hit 20. Did Moreland never hit 21 homers. Jody had, didn't hit 21 homers, right? Jody did. Any of those? Jody, Jody did. Had 21 okay. Good for him. All right. And then uh, I un- guess. Unlikely, I think, given his was, age. Was it Brian Dayette? No, I'm sorry. Uh, was it Sarge? It was, yes, Gary Matthews. 35 Jesus years Christ. old. Jesus Christ. Fucking led the cup. That sums up the 86 cup. 21 homers and 46 RBIs. Oh, my God. <laughs> drove Not to it. Drove it 25 runs. That's Rick, Rick Wilkins. That's Rick Wilkins, nineteen ninety three esque. Yeah. Uh, not to indulge you too much, but I if you, I don't know if you'd want to look up Brian Dayette's game log, but I'm pretty sure that he hit his one grand slam in nineteen eighty six. He hit two for the Cubs, so I can provide some backstory because I too was excited about Brian Dayette. He was one of the few acquisitions that the Cubs made coming out of the eighty four season. Right, the eighty four Cubs, they're veterans. They're set. Don't have to really do too much. One thing they did was they signed Larry Sorensen in his missing second R. And Sorensen had been a decent pitcher in the early 80s, but he sucked with the 85 Cubs, and he was not on the 86 Cubs, I'm pretty sure. Um, I don't think – I think his name would have come up. But the other thing they did was they traded Henry Cotto, who was Bob Dernier's backup in 84, to the Yankees for uh, Ray Fontenot who would looked a little bit like George Frazier and would be shipped out of town late in 86 along with George Frazier and Brian Dayette. And I remember I have a cousin, grew up a diehard Yankees fan, big geek, telling us how awesome Brian Dayette was and how upset he was that Brian Dayette was coming to the Cubs. So I, I was I wasn't as excited as you were. I was like, hey. Well, this was a this was a big trade. This was it wasn't just Cotto for Fontenot and um Oh, who'd I miss? It was Porphy Alter Morano. Oh, best known as the third wheel and the Bob Dernier Gary Matthews trade in which the Cubs merely handed off Bill Campbell to the Phillies. Porphy was the third Cub in that trade. So they, they flipped Porphy. Wow. He's like Porphy, the golden ticket. Henry Cotto. Rich Bordy, who I argue was a better relief pitcher than Ray Fontenot. 100%. And Ron Hassey for Fontenot. Wow. More memorable names. 
weird thing about the 86 uh, era is that a, a lot of these trades you mentioned, usually, like I said earlier, you mentioned these trades. I don't even know half the guy, I can't, even from the 80s, but Ron Hansi's come up multiple times tonight. Yeah, so Dayette had played, uh, he spent most of 84 uh, in Columbus playing for the Clippers. Yankees, farmhand. Uh, he had 301 with a 389 on base and a 464 slug. He was a legit, like, yeah, probably prospect. teammates. The problem with was he had Mattingly. been. Yeah, he was stuck. Um, well, it was teammates with Mattingly, but he was an outfielder. Right. But he, I don't know who the Yankees had, but he. He while he spent way too much time in the minors. He was basically Patrick Wisdom. He was twenty. He was twenty eight for the eighty five Cubs. He got um, called up. I see now in eighty three and eighty four and yeah. eighty five for the Cubs. That might have been his one grand slam though. He had one homer and four uh, four RBIs in that whole season. Yeah. So he got his real his as close as he ever got with as a run with the Cubs was in eighty seven, and he had two seventy seven, three forty eight, four fifty two, five homers, twenty five RBIs. Walked 20 times pretty, in 177 at-bats. He was pretty good. But he was also 30 kind years of a, old by then. And they sold him to a team in Japan. That's one of those deals where you know, your, his agent works out a deal and the Cubs have to like get right. him out of his contract. So he went he went to fight Ham in Nippon. Right, Nippon Ham Fighter. You know, talked about like the, the sad tale of George Frazier, the tragedy of John Vukovic, and now I, I've got the, uh, the, you know, the the heartstrings pulling for Brian Dayette because he had a, a 800 OPS in 100. I mean, like he he performed, like yes, at least was, for the Cubs, at least in the last two seasons. It's not like they were, oh, they, they were just so loaded that they were like, oh, we don't have room for this guy. But you're – but you're right. He was 30 by yeah, 1987, 30. but he put up an 800 OPS. Probably not enough power even by 87, because that was a that was a very spiked ball season anyway. But he only had 100, no, 200 plate appearances. But how about seems this? A little bit unfair. So great moments in Brian Day in history. May 22nd, 1985, Reds are in town to play the Cubs, and let's see. In the sixth inning, the Cubs are trailing four to two. And the inning starts, Tom Browning is pitching for the Reds. Ron Say singles, Jody Davis singles, Say goes all the way to second. Leon Durham walks. That brings up Larry Boa. Larry grounds out uh, to the third baseman. They go home, so the bases are still loaded. And Brian Dayette pinch hits for Dennis Eckersley. And on the first pitch, he hits a grand slam. And the Cubs. That's one of them. Six. He did it that early in his career. That wasn't his first career homer, right? No, I'm sorry. He actually hit four homers for the Yankees. Yeah, that was his first as a Cub was Grand Slam in 85. Okay. I knew I called one of those. And then, okay. Wow. And who was that off of? Sorry. Tom Browning. Tom Browning, who would throw, it would be a a rare 20-game winner as a rookie. And then, of course, more famously, circa 1993, hanging out uh, on on the front of the portico on the third floor of of an apartment building on Wavell or Sheffield while the game was going on. In full uniform, looking good. Right. Now, Browning, his character. So, and... I, I appreciate him uh, letting Brian Day take him yard for his first Cub homer and a grand slam. So I remember that. And I, like I said, I was already a little bit pumped about Brian Day. So I was, you know, even more excited. So, yeah, so I love Brian Day. Um, I see. I, I, I wore 12 in little league. Um, 
because of Sean for most of my time. And then in, I guess in 1987, um, you switched the doubled other, it? Well, team I played for, we got, <laughs> we got some brand new uniforms. Like they ordered some. a bunch of new ones, but we were still using some of the old ones and, um, the new ones were all higher numbers. And 24 was a brand new one. So I said, yeah, I'm going to wear, I'm going to wear it for Brian Day. So I switched, from 12 to, I switched from 12 to 24 basically so I could wear a new, a new jersey instead of one of the old ones. Nice to see how, how fickle your loyalty is. Yeah. All right. Hey, Sean, up yours. <laughs> Sorry, dude. First year I played, um, I just got given a number. I was eight. There was nothing I could do about it. I, they gave me five. And I was a, um, a right-handed throwing, left-handed batting third baseman. So I was George Brett. I'm sure I hit just nice. like him at eight years old, too. Sure, sure. Or maybe Mike Squires, but okay. He was left-handed. I know, in a third baseman. I'm sorry. You were the right so you're just like me, throw right bat left. Yeah. I had it reversed with Squires, right. Uh let's see before we get out of here, are there any other great yeah, 86 Cubs? I was I'm scouring and I, you know I'm having cataract surgery tomorrow, so it's like I'm like Mr. Yeah, I should get a screenshot of you like it looks like you, <laughs> looks like you have a monocle on. You're like looking with one eye. Hey, does anybody screen. have a magnifying glass? I'm it's trying to look at my you second a, monitor here. Give you here. a jewelry loop so you can read your monitor. But I swear to God that Brian Day had a second grand slam, and I'm not finding it. And it's fine. I'm fine. If I can't find it, it happened in a different season, and it may not have been in '86 anyway. In which case, I might gain some level of redemption in either 85 or 87. I don't know. It wasn't 85 because no, it was 85 was when he hit the other. So it's either 86 or 87, but I don't know. I figured if we're scraping the barrel of Brian day, we've got everybody covered. I don't think we've uh, failed like anybody. Yeah. The only, we talked about Jay Baller because he came in and blew that safe. Um, one of the great baseball Chester. cards of all time is Jay Baller's 86. 86 or 87 baseball card. I don't know which it is, but lots of chest hair looking great. Right. You just um, get to hear the porn music when you like, look at the card. Frank Cicino pitched for the Cubs. They he, was, he would he pitch did. there the next year too. And he would be teammates with Mark Grace. And then later they would get in a fight when he was pitching for the Cardinals. Some shit happened. Some shit went down between those two. I don't know what. But yeah, it came out in, in very dramatic. And we we broke it down, I think, because we covered '89. It came out in '89, but yeah, they were teammates in '86. So that's about it. But it is, it, the podcast I think we thought we were going to do today is one we'll have to we'll do when they get '87, which is saying goodbye to all these guys. I didn't realize they lingered right an extra year. Now I'm ready. Now I didn't either. In ready. my head, '86 80, that goodbye Penguin, goodbye Sarge. It was like the Wizard of Oz in reverse. It was goodbye. You know, Moreland was kind of on his way out. No, they they were all there in 80. They came back for one more. Yeah, I, I don't know what Dallas was thinking. Can't why just, his work. kids weren't his kids weren't ready. Like I said, it the 86 was the gap and I think it was used against Dallas because they were so bad. Uh but there was reinforcements around the way it just wasn't obvious from the perspective of 1986. So I hope we gave it its due. We certainly gave it a long due. It's almost 2 hours talking about the 86. Uh <laughs> Is there some inverse relationship between? No, we know that's not true because we did do three hours for the 2003 Cubs. So. Yes, but that's people demanded that, and that one got consumed yeah. in large numbers. I don't let's, know that we'll do as well see, with the 86 Cubs. Let's see. Let's see how many people listen to the end. Let's see how many people get to the Brian Day at misinformation campaign. Did he have one Grand Slam or two at the end of the con at the podcast? I don't. I, let's I don't call know. him up. Have him on. He can describe all of his Grand Slams to us. 
Now that's an idea. Let's like get Joel, some of these guys Joel on. Kincher, my little league twenty four jersey. It'd be great. I can ask Jim Tracy how he felt when uh, his number wasn't in the program, even though he was in the lineup in nineteen eighty. I, I actually remember that. that year. I got um, I don't remember what year I got the I got the Ryan Sandberg glove. It was a great glove, and I've, it's since been lost. Um, bought it at Farm and Fleet. That's the best place to buy baseball gloves. But I um, love Farm and Fleet. I had that Sandberg glove, and that's the one that I like. I got it in an age where I like knew how to break it in, and it was I was I was you know it was as big a glove. I bought like an adult size glove because I was actually ready to handle an adult size glove, and I had that glove and all. That. And I remember that that year I decided I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be 24 forever. So I wrote my number and marker on um right by the R on the webbing 24, so I could just you know grab it and go whenever you know no one would actually right. grab my glove. And I remember one of my friends giving me shit like you wrote your number on it. There's no way you're ever going to keep that stupid number. I think I only played a couple more years before I ran out of it. We didn't have a high school baseball team. Couldn't play ba- couldn't play baseball in high school. We didn't have a team. Is that right? Yes. It's right. You played football. You... Jesus Christ. Played football, basketball, How hard is it to put together? I mean, you think, like, the resources to put together a football team seems so enormous compared to baseball. How, you just didn't have enough interest is what you're saying. I guess not. My brother played. Uh, he was his. He played on the last team in a long time, and now they have a co-op with another school, so you can play baseball there again. In fact, that one started not long after I left. I would have done that. So, no, you had to play summer yeah. baseball instead. You couldn't. There was no spring. Although honestly, spring baseball sucks. Weather's terrible. Uh, I'm in the midst of it, dude. Playing We've had. Uh, I'm just coaching. I'm just coaching it's, like 11 year olds. But I hate. Sleep, but I, we, it's ironic because I'm a runner now. But I hated. I hated track so bad. I wasn't I actually it was pretty good. But I hated track. But if you're on the football team, you had to be on the track team. That was a it was uh, a rule. And then we would won the we won the conference every year because we were like the only team that had uh, entered people in every single event because we had numbers. <laughs> we had a big ass nice. track team. So Duran was coming to kick your ass because it didn't matter how slow any of us were, we were scoring points. So. By the way, let's close this by bringing some closure and pointing out I, I was able to discern, and we'll talk about it if we want to. I'm sure you'll want to. But on June 3rd, 1987, in a 22-7 Cubs victory, Brian Diet did, in fact, hit his oh, uh, second career grand slam early in the game off of uh, Bob Nepper, who has been referred, not to be confused with Al Nipper or Bob Kipper. Uh, but Brian Diet did hit two grand slams with the Cubs, not one. And I have proof. So... There you go. I'll sleep better knowing that. I know you will. Happy to happy to help. All right. Well, that's the '86 Cubs. More than you ever wanted to know about them. By far. Everything. By everything you wanted to know about the '86 minutes. Cubs, but did not care to ask. Yeah, I honestly feel for once we left every we didn't leave a single stone unturned. I'd be yeah. shocked if there's anything I think yeah, about after. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Sounds good. Thanks, Andy. Many of us have herpes. 